It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode 110 of Minnesota Sports Weekly. I'm your host, Travis Oni, and I have a guest co-host tonight, uh, Devlin Clark. Uh, and he has his own podcast. There's, I'll let him tell you about his podcast. Um we're going to start out the show. We're going to have Brandon Warren on, uh, Ted Schwarzler on, uh, Andy, also known as He Hate Me, will make an appearance. Seth Stowe will make an appearance. And KSTP's uh, D- Darren Wilson will also make an appearance. Uh, we're on, on the air to, to it's a baseball show tonight as uh, Kenta Maeda trade talk will be the majority of the of the show. So without any further ado, I'm going to bring on my co-host for the night, Devlin Clark. Devlin, how's, how's it going? Good, Travis. How are you? I'm excellent. And I, I wanted to, we were going to start at 6, but I wanted to start at 5.30 because I wasn't able to make it down to Twins Fest this year. And I, yeah. I was hoping you could you could uh, paint a picture for me so I can feel like I was actually there. So what was it like? Well, you know, Travis, I'll do the best I can to paint a picture for you. Uh, it was really, really busy this year. I think the there were two big reasons. Um, the Twins announced, uh, first of all, they cut it back from three days to two days. I think that was one of the biggest things that Twins fans noticed right away. Traditionally, it's been Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, with Sunday the autographs and the sessions and the events in general just being cheaper because it's kids' day and they have more events tailored for kids. But this year they cut it back to Friday and Saturday only. And the Twins announced that Saturday was sold out, and there were a lot of people there. And on Friday they announced after um, the event was over that Friday had also, in fact, been a sellout. I think they said the two-day total for people ended up being just shy of 12,000. I think it ended up being about 11,500 people. Um, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a really, really, really good event. It was busy. 
Um, there were some major changes from years past that we can get into. Um, but overall, it was it was still a really good event, and, and I had fun like I always do. Okay, what are some of the things that you can, a person that's never been to Twins Fest, I've been a few times, but it's been a couple of years, what are some of the things that you can do at Twins Fest now that it's over at Target Field? Well, one of the one of the things you can do at Twins Fest is you um, you have your you really can do anything that you want, and that's really kind of the nice thing. If you want to stand in line and get autographs with, for, from players, you can do that. If you want to sit and listen to interviews in the Pucket Atrium over by uh, Bat and Barrel with WCCO Radio and Fox Sports North as they interview players, coaches, front office guys, you can do that. If you want to walk around and go down to the first and third base lounge where the uh, where the uh, clubhouse is, you can do clubhouse tours. If you want to get some behind-the-scenes action that the Twins don't really show a whole lot of people. You can take the White Glove Tour of the Twins Archives Room with Clyde Detner, which I highly recommend. It's a lot of fun. If you just want to kind of walk around and do different things, you can do that. Uh, they had a lot of different events this year than they had in years past, and, and I thought some of the events they had were pretty cool, and there were a lot of kids there, and they seemed to really enjoy it. So, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. But you can really – there's something there for everybody, uh, no matter what kind of Twins fan they are. What did, what did you do? What did I do? Come on, Travis, you know me. You know I'm an autograph collector. I stood in line for autographs. <laughs> I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a big memorabilia guy. Um, I collect a lot of Twins memorabilia, everything from cards to photos to baseballs. Um, this year I had a bunch of game-used items that I wanted to get signed, and I was lucky enough to get all everything except one of them signed. So I was very fortunate about that. I got some cards signed. I got a couple of baseballs signed. Um, I didn't really do any photos this year. I'm not as big a photo guy as some people, um, but I did baseballs. I did a couple of jerseys. I did some game-used bats. I did some cards. You know, that, that for me is what Twins Fest is all about. I usually, you know, take – I'll find a session where I really don't, you know, either need anybody or already maybe have that autograph in my collection. And I'll take that – the sessions are an hour apiece, and I'll take that session off, and I'll just kind of walk around, get something to eat, use the restroom, maybe go down um, to the first – they call it the basement level, which is uh, the first and third base lounge by the clubhouse. And if you go into the Champions Club, they have a dealer. They have dealers set up there where you can buy um, cards and memorabilia and baseballs and photos and all different kinds of things. And and you never know who walks through there. I saw Tony Oliva in there last year. So it's uh, it's a pretty cool event. I I stood in line. I got a bunch of autographs and I got a lot of the stuff I wanted done. So it was fun. Is uh, was there a, a lot of players there because I heard that there wasn't going to be as many players at the event this year. Yeah, I think that I think what it was, Travis, was being the fact that it cut cut down from three days to two days. I think they cut out 
um, some players. And granted, not everybody from the current roster was there. Um, notable absences were Miguel Sano, who was there until, like, Friday morning, and then they took him off the autograph schedule, which was kind of a bummer. Um, so he wasn't there. Buxton wasn't there. Kirloff wasn't there. His wife was having a baby, um, and it was their first, so that's totally understandable. Uh, Nelson Cruz was was not there. He was back, I believe, in the Dominican or Puerto Rico um, rehabbing and working on his swing and his wrist from last year. So there were some players that weren't there, but if you look at other fan fests compared to the ones that the Twins do at Twin Fest, the Twins still by far have the absolute best fan fest in Major League Baseball, and it's not even close. There's some, like the Baltimore Orioles were so bad last year, they didn't even do a fan fest this year, and I'm not even kidding. Like, they just canceled fan fest. Wow. Yeah. Um, a lot of the teams that do do fan fests either – have a certain amount of players, like they'll have five to ten players. They'll limit the items that players will sign, like, hey, we'll only sign, you know, cards or we'll only sign photos or they'll have pre-printed or, you know, like uh, kind of caravan-style twins or caravan-style cards that they'll sign. They won't let you bring in outside items to sign. So they some some teams don't do a lot with alumni, so. The Twins are very, very fortunate in that they've cultivated a culture where they have great, um, you know, front office people, the former players, Kadir, Morno, Nathan, Hunter, Herbeck, Maurer, Morno, all those guys who um, who are special advisors. Those guys are all the – a lot of the alumni that were there this year. There were more, too, but – uh, the Twins do a lot, and they they have the best fan fest. And I would say probably a majority, probably two thirds to three quarters of the uh, of the forty man roster was there, and there were a lot of prospects there as well. Um, what about is Joe Mauer still an attraction for people? <laughs> Oh yeah, no, absolutely, Travis. I mean, he was he was signing originally. He was going to sign with uh, Justin Morneau and Glenn Perkins, and then they did some scheduling changing, and he was scheduled to sign with him and Justin. And then they did they tweaked the schedule again, and they had him signing by himself. And his line was very very long. Um, I had heard from somebody I don't know. If it's accurate or not, I had heard from somebody who was upwards of over 300 people. So, um, wow. You know, but but when you when you have one person signing, it goes a lot quicker to get through 300 people in an hour than it does, you know, if you have a table of four or five players and whatnot. So, but yeah, Joe the- is absolutely 100% still an attraction. Was uh. Are the players friendly when it comes to talking to fans, or is that some are nice and some are a little on the let's just say not wanting to talk? You know, Travis, uh, I've been to Twins Fest every year since 2014, with the exception of one year. 
And in all the sessions and all the players I've met, I have never had a player who didn't really want to talk. Um, obviously, you don't spend – you get about five seconds with the player, maybe ten. You really just kind of get up there, give them your items, say what you want to say, and then, you know, you move on to the next player. Or if it's only one player, in the case of Joe Mauer, you walk out of the room and go do what you're going to do next. Um, yes, most of the players are very, very friendly. I know this will surprise absolutely nobody, but Sergio Romo is a national treasure. Um, the man was, the man was, was talking to people and hugging people and taking pictures with people, and and nobody seemed to mind. Um, the twin handlers, the volunteers that are there, they're very, very strict about let's go. You know, you guys have one hour. We got We want to get through as many people as possible which I understand um, you definitely for the sake of other fans, you always want to kind of get through as many fans as possible, especially if they've been standing in line for an hour and two or sometimes three, depending on the player in the line. Um, but yeah, Romo, Romo was the best. Yeah. I mean, the players are very, very uh, friendly. You know, they know that it's fan fest. They know that twin fans spend a lot of money and come out and, come out in droves in the middle of January just to see them and meet them and talk to them. And, and I know the players have a good time too. So it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. The, the, the players are always very friendly. Like I said, in fact, I would, I would even say in all the the times I've ever gone to a twins event, uh, to a twins autograph session, going back to about 1997 when they used to do the Saturday morning autograph parties on the plaza in the Metrodome, which shows you how old I am and how long I've been a Twins fan. Um, <laughs> I've only I've only really had one negative experience uh, with a Twins player. So the Twins, the the players are just fantastic, and you can tell they really get a kick out of it as well. Was I have to ask? Was your favorite Twin uh, Williams Astudio there? You know, Travis, that's an outstanding question, and unfortunately, he was not. Um, ever since oh. he's come to the Twins organization, he has not appeared at Twins Fest, which is a real bummer because, as you mentioned, he is my favorite player. Uh, the reason he's my favorite player is because he and I um, share an affinity for chubbiness. Um, we're both <laughs> on the uh, chubby side, as as I'm sure a lot of uh, Twins fans might be or some Twins fans might be. And uh, so, no, he wasn't there, but I've, I've, got a, I've got a cool collection of his stuff. And actually today um, I just got a game-used bat of his in the mail. So I was very I was very happy about that. So that will be a cool addition to my uh, La Tortuga collection. Um, what if, if – let's just talk about this here. If you could have done something that you didn't get a chance to do, was there anything that that you wanted to do? It just maybe time factor or uh, not a shyness or or whatever that you, you you didn't get to do this year. Was there anything? Yeah, I mean, you know, I always, what I always try to do, Travis, is I'm a big, you know, in addition to being a big collector of twin stuff, I'm a big, big 
um, lover and respecter of Twins history. You know, the Twins have a very rich history going back to 1961. And even if you want to go back further to 1901 with the um, Washington Senators, they have a very, very long and rich team history. And one of the things that I always, always, always enjoy doing, I mentioned it earlier, is the White Glove Tour with Twins curator Clyde Deppner. If you've never met Clyde Deppner, the man is a human in Twins encyclopedia. I mean, he knows everything there is to know about every Twins player, game, situation, season, everything. He's 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 very much a treasure hunter and treasure collector in that he appreciates the memorabilia that people have. He's got a collection of his own. Um, and usually what happens is you pay a fee, some, some $25, $30, whatever the case may be, and you and a group of 10 to 12 people, maybe up to 15, spend an hour with Clyde, and you guys go back into the Twins archives, and you see a lot of stuff that the general public and most Twins fans don't get to see. Uh, they always usually have a player there, or in in a lot of cases, Tom Kelly, Jack Morris, player, uh, people like that. They showed, uh, I went last year, and it was TK, and they showed... Um, the bat that Don Baylor hit a grand slam in from the 87 World Series. They showed, um, what else do they have? They had some um, pocket game use stuff. They had some um, just, you know, things like that. They they have kind of a cool memorabilia collection. They'll show, they have stuff from the 65 World Series. They have advertising and, and scorebooks signed by different players and things like that. So, It's a really cool experience. That's one thing that I wish I would have done uh, this year that I didn't do, but I'll definitely be doing that next year because it's a lot of fun. It's really fun, but it's also very educational, especially um, if you don't know a lot about Twins history or if you're like me and you just love learning about it and want to learn more. Okay. Uh, In all the years that you've been, who's your favorite player that that you got to meet at Twins Fest? My favorite player in all the years I've gone. Um, You know, I'm a big Trevor May guy. He's my, he's one of my main uh, guys that I collect. I think I have probably 50 Trevor May autographs. Um, I met him, the first time I met him was 2014, which I believe was the offs. January of 14 at Twinfest, which I believe was about a month after we acquired him because I think we traded for him, I want to say December of 2013, something like that. And he wasn't even signing. I was just kind of walking in one of the corridors, and he was just kind of leaning up against the wall drinking a bottle of water. And I was, and I'm, and I've always been a big prospects guy. I've always, been, and I was like, "Wow, you're Trevor Maine." He's like, "Yeah." And we talked for a little bit, and I told him, you know, welcome to Minnesota, and we talked about what kind of pitches he throws and what his what his goals were. And I asked him if he'd take a picture with me, and he did. And and uh, and ever since then, he's he's been one of my favorite players. Um, when my dad when my uh, dad died two years ago, I set up a GoFundMe, and Trevor May was kind enough to donate to it, and he retweeted it on Twitter, and he helped raise some money for that. So he's just an all-around good dude. He's been my favorite player for a long time, and uh, yeah, he's 
he's probably the number one guy that that I just I really get a kick out of talking to him. Yeah, it, it, a lot of people love Trevor Ray, and and uh, it'll be interesting. He's a free agent at the end of the year, so Twins better get him signed. Yeah, you know, I think they'll they might offer him a qualifying offer. Otherwise, um, you know, the, if they offer him a qualifying offer and he doesn't take it, they'll get draft compensation. They could go to arbitration. They could buy out some of free agency. He's he's going to be an important part of the bullpen this year, Travis. You know, if a guy like if you know he's going to be one of those key guys. If you if you can get a repeat performance from Tyler Duffy, who I mean, man, that guy came out of nowhere last year. He struggled as a starter. Mm-hmm. His career ERA as a starter was, you know, 5.14 or something like that. And Trevor May started, and he got hurt, and he had one year where he was totally missed a year with Tommy John or elbow surgery. And, and guys like that, if you can get those two guys to come back and just continue to be dominating, and even Zach Littell. Zach Littell picked very, very well last year, too. If you can get them uh, to continue to be – the, the perform the players they were last year at the level they were at last year, man, that's a huge addition to that bullpen. But yeah, I, I'm pretty sure they'll they'll re-sign him. I think they're happy with uh, with what he's done, and I think uh, you know he's going to be motivated this year to have a career year, knowing that uh, you know he's he's up a, he's up for either arbitration or free agency at the end of the year. Um. Back to the Twins Fest. Uh, what uh, what what kind of refreshments and food items do they have? Uh, you know, Travis, they have the concession stands open. So any um, a lot of the items that you can get at Twins Fest are ones that you can get at the stadium. Obviously, you know it is inside, so they don't have you know, the Tony O Cuban sandwich stand or, you know, any of those stands open. But they have the indoor stands. They have hamburgers, hot dogs, nachos, burgers, fries, uh, soda, water, Gatorade, beer, pretty much anything you can think of um, that, you know, is kind of baseball-related, popcorn, that kind of stuff, that was all available for a hefty price, of course. Oh, of course. Um, what, if you could tell someone that's never been to Twinfest one thing about what they should be prepared for, what would that be? Be prepared for a lot of people. Um, even, even in slow years, Saturday tends to be the busier of the days because, you know, a lot of times Friday kids are still in school, people still have work, etc. Sundays in years past when they've had it, it tends to be slow because of church and family day. So Saturday, if you're going to go to Twin Fest on Saturday, be prepared to have to get there early, have a lot of people there. Um, you know, so if you're, if you're not a fan of, of being around a lot of people or if that creates anxiety or whatever the case may be, um, you may not, you may want to rethink it, but, but that's definitely what I would say. And then also come with, be prepared to go with a plan, come with a plan, figure out what you want to do ahead of time and stick to it. Cause it's really easy to, to get there and go, you know, and have a list 
of things you want to do and then get there and go, oh, well, I don't want to do that. I want to do this instead. And then you end up spending more money than you imagined. So um, stick to a plan. Make it, uh, you know, figure out what you want to do and stick to it. If there's if there's one thing that a lesson that you learned from going to Twins Fest, oh, no, my my question is, what's the biggest difference now at Target Field versus when it was at the Metrodome? Uh, you know, I didn't go to it a whole lot when it was at the Metrodome. Like I said, I've only been going for the last seven years or so. But I've talked to people who have gone. Um, they really like the Metrodome layout because you could go down on the entire field and you didn't have to be crunched into Skyline Suites and you didn't have to be crunched into the first and third base lounge. You kind of had more room. The downside to that, obviously, is, or the upside to that, obviously, is you could do that when you're at the Metrodome. You know, you can do it because you're in a in a dome stadium. You can't do that at Target Field in January. They're not obviously going to let people stand out on the field and freeze during Twins Fest. So it is what it is. You know, people have people have thought, oh, you know, why don't you move it to you know U.S. Bank Stadium or the Convention Center or whatever. And and I can see where they're coming from in terms of, yes, those venues may be bigger, but if you're the Twins and you're holding your annual FanFest baseball event, you want it at your own ballpark. You want to be able to have all the amenities of your ballpark because if you think about it, that's just more cost because then you have to pay people to, to haul stuff there, haul it back, food, drinks, all that kind of stuff. So it's it's a good idea in theory, but it's not really practical. Um, I would say probably, like I said, talking to people who went when it was at the dome, the dome had more space. I think it's pro. I think it's perfect the way it is. I like it, but that's just me. Um, I was gonna ask you what are uh, our, our fans that that go to this. Are they respectful of the players, or do you? Is there problems where the security has to get involved, for the most part? Um, you know, there is there for the most part. Everything I've ever seen has been respectful. Although I did hear a story this year about a guy who was standing in line for like two hours for a signing for a Rod Carew. He didn't know that Rod Carew didn't sign bats. You know, certain players have certain things they won't sign. Gil Maurer tends to not sign game use items. Um, for whatever reason, Rod Carew doesn't like to sign bats, this, that, and the other. The guy didn't know that. He got up. He paid the he paid the table fee, walked up, had Mr. Carew, handed Carew a bat. Carew's like, I'm not signing that. The guy made a big fuss about it. Um, you know, Jack Morris kind of had to get on the guy a little bit and say, hey, you know, Rod's allowed to not sign what he wants to do. And the guy, like, I don't know if he got angry at Morris or what, but there was a little bit of a commotion from what I was told. Um, he ended up getting another item signed, but it's things like that, you know, be, being prepared and knowing that ahead of time. And the Twins do a great job of announcing that uh, when they put the schedule out. 
if any items are prohibited. But I, I've never personally run into an issue. Um, and the only things that I have ever seen where, you know, fans have, have you know, maybe had a difference of opinion or disagreed with a player signing something is what is fan is people who are dealers. And you can tell um, people who collect and who are real fans and people who are dealers and go there to get items signed to sell them and make money. Um, how how do the Twins make it clear that so-and-so only signs baseballs or do they put it on the website or, or how, how do you, how do you know what not to uh, bring to the the table? That's a great question, Travis. Yeah, the Twins do uh, put it on their website. When the Twins announce the schedule and the prices and the times, if you um, scroll down to the bottom of the page, it'll show you, um, you know, the, and sometimes the player's name will even have an asterisk next to it, like Maurer, no game used items, Carew, no bats and jerseys. You know, Burt tends to personalize a lot of things, whatever the case may be. Uh, the Twins do note that on their website, on the schedule, at the bottom of it, and they also note that on the paper schedule that they um, – or the hard copy schedule that they give to fans when they come into the stadium. So, yeah, it, it's known. Um, some players are willing to, um, shall we say, not abide by that. It, it's really, It's really, I think, kind of more of a Twins policy than it is a player policy, I think, it depends on the player. Players like Rod Carew, I would think, you know, he he probably doesn't want to sign a whole lot of bats, but he he will in certain cases. I think Joe Maurer would sign anything that anybody asked him to, but I think the Twins don't want him signing game-use stuff. So some of it's the Twins, some of it's the player. Um, but, yeah, to answer your question, yeah, the Twins – the Twins make it very obvious and very clear on both the hard schedule that they give out and then the online schedule as well, what players will or will not sign certain items. Uh, Devlin, I want to thank you for uh, p- painting a picture for me of Twins Fest. Hopefully I can get back down there next year. Uh, we have our first guest on the second part of the show. Uh, Seth Stowes from Twins Daily. Uh, we, we can talk to him about uh, the off season, and uh, with that, I'm gonna bring Seth on, and we can get at it. Seth, how's it going? Uh, living the proverbial dream. How are you guys? I heard all about Twins Fest. What 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 would be one of your best uh, memories of Twins Fest since you've been going? Um, you know, I mean, early on, it was just the interaction with a lot of the minor leaguers, being able to shake hands and, and talk and things like that, but. For me, I think two years ago, bringing my daughter, she would have been probably 11 at the time, um, kind of being able to introduce her to some of the players and letting her shake hands and things like that. Um, you know, I went there 
uh, Devlin, as you know, I went I, I went on a Friday night with her and kind of let her be the, the fan. I played dad that night, um, and then I just went from a media standpoint on the Saturday. But playing dad and watching her get excited, going through the lines and getting autographs and all that kind of stuff, uh, to me that was, that was a lot of fun. Now, obviously, Seth, you know, the big off-season move that the Twins made right around that time was the Josh Donaldson signing. I want to say the the press conference was maybe Wednesday. The Diamond Awards were that Thursday, and then Twins Fest was uh, Friday and Saturday. A lot of times when players are in town for Twins Fest, they'll sign and take physicals. From a media standpoint, I assume everything checked out with uh, J.D. on the – um, on the health standpoint, I didn't hear anything come out. Did you hear anything that, uh, you know, he maybe still have any any lingering issues or maybe anything that came up medically? No, I mean, I, I, uh, I didn't go down until Thursday, and I think the press conference, like you said, was either Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, I don't think it even came up, frankly, just because I don't – I mean, he was healthy all of 2019, so um, – I think the questions that came up were, how do you do this? How do you maintain this? Blah, blah, blah. Um, but, no, everything from that standpoint sure sounds good. And, uh, I mean, he looks good. He looks strong. He looks excited, ready to play. So, um, I mean, that's a, that's a huge signing for the Twins. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about last night. Uh, um, Mookie Betts got traded from the Red Sox to the Dodgers, and then it came out about 8 o'clock or so that there was a third team, and then Doogie Wilson kind of hinted that the Twins might be the third team, and then we found out that they were the third team, and that the guy they got was uh, Kenta Maeda. My question, though, for you is... uh, being a prospect guy, how difficult is it for you to uh, lose uh, Bruce Gratterall? I mean, I think it's a, it's a good question. Um, over the last decade, pretty much, the Twins haven't been good. So typically the Twins have been the ones trading the veterans for the prospects and accumulating talent. But you know, after last year, after signing Donaldson, this is a World Series contending team um, even before this. So now they're in that mode of being willing to trade prospects for talent. And like like we always say, and the cliche is out there, um, you have to give up something to get something. And it probably will have to hurt a little bit, you know. And, yeah, you don't want to give up Gratterall. Um, you don't want to give up on what he could still become, but at the same point, this this is a team that can win now. And Kenta Maeda makes them better in 2020. He's he's really good. I think a lot of Twins fans don't realize how good he's been. Um, he can help solidify that that rotation. He sits in sets in right now at you know probably a number three, um, and gives them a better chance to win. And, and his versatility is important. But Gratterall, you know, nobody's going to be happy if he becomes an ace and becomes the next, uh, um, I don't know, 
Garrett Cole or whatever the case may be. Um, but we also have to understand there's no such thing as a pitching prospect. He's already been through Tommy John. He had the shoulder injury last year that cost him three months of the season. Because of that, the innings limits uh, will be there for a while. Um, if he's going to be a starter, I mean, personally, gr- good for him. Brewster is a good kid. He's uh, he's he's young, but he's he's very uh, top positive, very fun to talk to. Um, when I saw him there, he you know did the fist bump thing right away. So I mean, this is a good guy, and you hate to lose him, but he had to give up something to get something. And and this team still, even without him, has a very strong bullpen and and a ton of starting pitching depth. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned Bruzdar Gratterall, and I, the name that came to mind with him as a player cop in terms of kind of his body style and kind of the way he throws and pitches is Joel Zumaya, and Zumaya also kind of had arm issues towards the end of his uh, career. When you when you look at a player like that, obviously, you know, I think the Twins' big three pitching prospects, and correct me if I'm wrong, you would know this better than I would, were Gratterall, Duran, and Balazovic. I think out of the three of those, the Twins thought that Gratterall might be, I don't want to say the most expendable, but um, he might have the lowest ceiling out of those three. Is that, uh, and that's why they were kind of able to move him along with, you know, maybe some of the injury concerns? I feel like his ceiling was probably the highest, and I think the Twins might say that. But because of the injury concerns, you know, you kind of have to measure the likelihood of, one, him being a starter or being a reliever because he's much more valuable if he can be a starter than a reliever, even if he's potentially going to be a a dominant reliever. Um, And likelihood of, of whatever that is to happen or health or that kind of thing. So, I mean, I, I feel like Belazovic is the guy who probably is most likely to have a starting career in the majors, followed by Duran, followed by Gratterall. But as it comes to ceiling, that may be completely re- reversed with Gratterall maybe having the highest ceiling than Duran, than Belazovic. But, uh, I mean, all three, I mean, I have them ranked uh, four, five, six, and I think a lot of people have them four, five, six, or four, five, seven, or even three, five, six, you know, that kind of thing. They're they're kind of all very similar in terms of uh, both ceiling and upside. Okay, uh, how surprised are you with the last month, the Twins signing Josh Donaldson and now trading one of their top prospects for a starting pitcher? This seems like it it never happened in in with the twins. Am am I, am I making too big a deal out of this, or is this a changing of the guard? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, this isn't your older brother's twins anymore. I mean, <laughs> this is a this is a new front office. They've made a lot of claims. They've done a ton. They've proven even in previous years they're not afraid to make a move, whether it's a free agent or making a trade. Um, and they said when the window opens, you know, they would jump through it. And they've, uh, I guess, disproven a lot of uh, narratives that probably were fair in some cases and weren't fair in some cases because of the economics and where the twins were in terms of, you know, they were pretty bad most of this decade. So there's no sense in 
in uh, making a ton of moves at that point. But they said once it opens, they were going to make an impact move. That impact move was was uh, Donaldson adding a, one of the game's greatest bats to a lineup that was already one of the best in baseball last year. And now they've done another thing, which is trading a top prospect, um, you know, maybe even getting ripped off a little bit. I mean, some could argue that. Um, I mean, again, I think Maeda is pretty good. He may be the Twins' number two starter this year, maybe number one at some point. But, uh, you know, they've uh, disproven a few of those things that a lot of Twins fans like to harp on over and over and over. and, And we're doing so as recently as three weeks ago. Speaking of Maeda, Baseball Reference has uh, his 2020 projection. His age 32 season, which would be his fifth season in Major League Baseball, he came over um, from Japan. His first year was his age 28 in 2016. They have him projected at nine wins, eight losses, ERA of 4.2. One of the big things about Maeda is his strikeout strikeout per nine inning rate he fans about 9.9 to 10 batters per nine innings can you can you talk about obviously you know his fastball isn't isn't you know he he doesn't have gratterall fastball where he's just going to blow guys away but his slider and his changeup are just absolutely devastating uh, i read one report that said his his changeup is plus and his slider is plus plus can you can you kind of talk about what Made to bring to the table in terms of um, you know being able to stabilize and give some stability to that Twins rotation. I think I think again to throw more cliches out there, he's he's a pitcher. He's not just a thrower. He's a pitcher. He knows how to pitch. Very smart. Um, okay. You notice that he is very good in terms of not giving up much hard contact. So not only does he mispass and get strikeouts especially last year but when people do make contact they don't make a lot of hard contact so I mean you mentioned the slider and the change up obviously I think he's shown pretty good control over the course of his career it's all of those things and what you know people want to say well who's going to compete against Garrett Cole nobody I mean there's Cole and Verlander and Scherzer and Strasburg and you know that's about it for that level of pitcher so no one's going to compete against Cole, but what these guys do, Barrios, Odorizzi, um, you know, even Hill, Pineda, uh, will give the Twins a chance by being veteran, not being overwhelmed by situations, throwing strikes, making the defense work, being pretty good in terms of, you know, being solid to above average major league pitchers and give that offense a chance against anybody at any time. So, um, yeah, I, I think what he is is he's just a really solid pitcher right in that realm of, of Odorizzi, and, and uh, that's pretty good. You and I were talking last night, and uh, when the the rumors were having uh, David Price come over to the Twins, you said you'd rather have Maeda than David Price. Can you talk about what why you you were so confident in Maeda being a an upgrade over David Price? Um, I don't I don't know that he's an upgrade over David Price. 
I think number one, there's a lot less risk because of Price's elbow. Um, you know, it's he's missed time, and you know, clearly um, there are issues with that elbow. That I mean, elbows are scary. And then you factor in the contract. Um, that's not even close. I mean, Maeda's got a three million dollar base every year. And can get up to maybe nine to ten, maybe eleven million if everything goes great. And if everything goes great, the Polads are going to be thrilled to give them give him ten million dollars. And even with uh, you know Boston eating about fifty million dollars, you know the the Dodgers are still going to have to pay uh, something in the range of um, you know fifteen to twenty million dollars for price for three more years. So. I mean, just it's not so much. I think Price probably has clearly has a higher ceiling, but there's a much bigger risk, in my opinion, of injury. No, I mean, Maeda is 31; he'll be 32 during this season. He very well could get hurt too. But from a risk reward standpoint, I just think that that Maeda makes a ton more sense. And from the Twins standpoint, if they want to stay in this 145 to 150 range. And maybe, you know, with Barrios eventually signing a deal and maybe even becoming more uh, involved in free agency and trade, having a guy like Maeda at that base salary is going to be important over the next few years because all of these guys are just going to keep getting more expensive. Let's talk a little bit about, let's go back and talk a little bit about Gratterall. You obviously have him ranked very high in your top 10 Twins prospects. I believe he was the highest ranked pitcher that you had. Now that he's not with the organization anymore, how does that affect your Twins rankings, not only 1 through 10, but also on the pitching side? Well, actually, this year I had Belazovic number four behind Lewis, Kirilov, and Larnick. I had Belazovic four, Gratterall five, and Duran six. And I was contemplating switching Duran and moving him up to five with Gratterall at six. But ultimately, I think both of them have a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. And when that happens and you're young, a lot of times people jump to the conclusion that you may end up in the bullpen. Fair or not, there's a lot of similarities between the two. And again, like I said earlier, all three of those guys are, are terrific and um, beyond that, you know, pitching-wise, I, I think I have Blaine Enloe pretty high. I have, uh, you know, Lewis Thorpe, I think, has a chance to be a pretty good major league pitcher. I had Matt Cantorino, the second-round pick from last year, in my personal top ten um, in, at Twins Daily today. I think he came in 15th in our Twins Daily rankings. Um, and, and, again, there is more depth as you go further down the system, and, I mean, boy, you could go on and on of guys that have a chance to be major league pitchers if they get the opportunity. I was uh, wondering, uh, with the depth the Twins have, could you see if they decide that we need someone to match up with uh, Garrett Cole or... Justin Verlander, and you and I have had this discussion about there isn't very many aces anymore. There's only like six or seven of them. Could you see the Twins making another trade to uh, to add uh, a more high upside pitcher to go against those guys? I mean, in theory, yes, and then I'm in July, I almost expect that. I don't know who those guys are. Honestly, earlier I named 
uh, Cole, Scherzer, Strasburg, and um, probably one more. I don't remember who else I named. I don't know who else is in that same category. Um, you know, Granky, Wheeler, um, you know, there's a lot of guys in that second tier that are maybe just a slight nod above the Odorizzi's and Barrios and Maeda category. Um, but again, who's going to go up against Garrett Cole that you're going to feel really confident about beating him? Nobody. So, I mean, I don't think it should ever be the goal to go up and say, hey, we're going to find a pitcher that's better than Garrett Cole because there just aren't very many of them. We've talked about John Gray maybe potentially being in that category or being of a similar path as Cole previous to this. But, I mean, there's no guarantee in that. Um, Who are the guys that are going to be available in um, July? I mean, Noah Syndergaard, maybe. Marcus Stroman isn't in that category either. He's in the Barrios or lower category. It's it's just so hard to predict, and none of us predicted Maeda. Um, so my my full expectation is to be surprised when something like that happens again. And I, at this point, have no reason to believe that they aren't going to be more than willing to do that when the time comes. Give me one pitcher and one hitter from your – from your top 10 or your top 20, who's going, who you think has the best chance to appear in a big league game for the twins this year, maybe not make an impact, but at least, you know, get called up and maybe spend a week or 10 days or two weeks with the twins. What prospects should fans be looking for this season? That's a tough question because they've developed such depth, even in the major leagues that I feel like at this point for people to get another opportunity in the big leagues, it's going to be because of an injury that has somebody out for a while. And we may see some of that Rochester to Minneapolis situation as well, especially early in the year with that fifth starter position where we've got Thorpe um, or Dobnik kind of going back and forth. They could get an opportunity, but in terms of the top 10, I mean, you know, Lewis, Kirilov could be if there's an injury to Sano or Donaldson or Rosario. Larnick could put himself in that category by the end of the year. I don't know that we'll see Belazovic, but, you know, maybe Duran already being on the 40-man roster gives him an opportunity. After that, I mean, you're going to look at guys like Nick Gordon, you know, if there's an injury in the middle infield. Uh, Lamont Wade will be in the picture again this year. It's a lot of guys that we've already seen. Maybe the back end of the bullpen will get, you know, guys opportunities, guys like Dobnik, Smelter, for, uh to compete with guys like Stashek and Whistler and others. Um, Delvin, uh, Devlin uh, brought up something earlier, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Do you uh, – see uh, Eddie Rosario maybe getting moved or is that ship sailed in your mind? Um, I mean, again, unless they actually get something, I I wouldn't just give them away. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with Kirilov getting another half season in Pensacola after missing a couple of years last year or a couple of months last year uh, due to injuries. Larnick only saw about a month, month and a half in double-A. Nothing wrong with those guys getting more double-A time and hopefully getting to triple-A by the end of the year. Brent Rooker is a name I mentioned. He could spend another bit. Um, 
But all of that is to say Eddie Rosario hit 30-some home runs last year, and he's been pretty consistent the last couple of years. And if he's your seventh-best hitter, that's pretty good. Eighth-best hitter, that's pretty good. Um, so I, I would not give him away. Um, and then next year you make a decision on whether or not you tender him. You know, again, you just, you're not going to get a ton for a guy that hits like he does, which is good but not great, and now is going to start making a lot of money. Is there – you mentioned that the Twins have the the nice, I guess, problem. It's a good problem to have of being so deep on the major league side but also very, very deep on the minor league side. If you look at – you know, I, I, I try to pay attention to the prospects as much as I can, obviously not to the extent that you guys do. But it seems like for every position the Twins have – a big league player who's productive and potentially an all-star or a very high-quality player, they seem to have just as high a prospect waiting in the wings. Is there any position where you could see um, maybe not a, a camp battle, so to speak, but where you could see like, hey, this major, the guy on the major league roster struggles and the prospect's ready to come up? Um, honestly, no other than maybe the back end of the bullpen, which by definition is guys that are, you know, trying to compete for those spots. The 26th man will be kind of up for grabs. But as long as there's no injuries, we pretty much know what the roster is going to be on opening day with a couple of small exceptions. You know, who's going to be the fifth starter between Chassin, Dobnik, Thorpe, Smeltzer, who's going to be the 26th man, you know, does Ostadio actually have a chance or could, um, could Lamont Wade be in that picture? Um, someone else like that. Um, but I, you ask a good question, uh, Devlin, in the sense that if you already look position by position, and then again, let's just take the left field as one example. If Rosario gets hurt and is out for a while, you could just go with Jake Cave and or Lamont Wade. But you've also got Alex Kirilov, Trevor Larnick, and Brent Rooker all either at double-A AA or triple-A to start the season who could come up. And, I mean, that's obviously tremendous depth. Those guys can all play right field as well. At first base, Kirilov is in that picture, and there's probably others. Middle infield, you've still got uh, Gordon. So uh, even catcher, you've got, you know, Garver and Avila. But, you know, Tomas Talese at 330 at Rochester last year. Juan Gratterall has been in the big leagues for four or five years. And you've got two really good prospects behind the plate in uh, Vet and Jeffers. Um, and pitching depth, we've talked about bullpen depth. So, overall, I love the question, and I love the fact that I'm trying to be fairly brief, and I just keep thinking of more depth of guys that are probably going to be ready either by the end of the year or very soon into 2021, which, like you said, is a very good thing. Um. Well, let's just say for argument's sake that Nelly Cruz retires at the end of the season. How do you think they would use the the DH spot? Would a guy like Brent Rooker get a a shot at that, or or would they go with a uh, just go with whoever needs a day off? It's so hard to predict something like that, but for argument's sake, we'll try. I think there's a lot of factors that will go into that. First, all those prospects, including Rooker, 
um, and how he performs to see if he might be ready to step into a DH role. Um, secondly, how does Miguel Sano perform defensively at first base? Um, I think we know Donaldson will be fine at third, but if Sano proves that he's kind of a butcher at first base, he could jump into that DH role. And again, that wouldn't be the end of the world, but he's obviously much more valuable personally if he can be a, a first baseman. And if Sano is the guy that moves, well, Rooker could play first, Kirillov could play first. And again, the, the Rosario decision, probably he's probably not back in 2021 and how all those guys perform. I'm not trying to avoid or not answer, but again, I just, there's so many factors that go into that. I don't think, uh, I don't think just going with the guy that needs a day off is a bad idea, but with what, with how much Rocco Baldelli believes in rest, um, I don't think he would prefer to do that either. I know this may seem crazy given how, given how popular he is as a player, how highly regarded he was, but is 2020 a make or break year for Byron Buxton? Granted, we've, We've asked that question two, the last two or three off seasons, but given that you said you know the Twins have so much depth, or even just sliding Kepler over to center and then putting you know any combination of those guys you just mentioned in right field, given his injury history, is this a make or break year for Byron Buxton? I uh, I'm not sure if I'm quite ready to say make or break, but I would say it's a big year for him to prove that he can stay on the field. Um, because again, he's not making a lot of money in 2020, and if he's hurt, he's not going to make a ton of money in 2021. Um, and, and he does still have, I think, two more years after this of arbitration. So, uh, but they will have a big decision to make on him next off season, and um, if he can play like he played the first 80 games of the season. He's an MVP caliber player, and I would very much consider locking him up if he's willing to negotiate that um, because at some point he's going to break out. We, we we always forget he's still like 25 years old, and at some point he's going to bust out and he's going to stay healthy, and maybe it's because he loses a step defensively, which would still make him one of the best defensive center fielders, but he's made some adjustments or whatever, and if he does that, he's going to be a, he's going to be a star. And uh, – I would I would not want to be the guy that got rid of him a year too soon. Good point. Good point. I, I I'm a little hard on him and and uh I know I I shouldn't be because he is the future in center field for the Twins and one of these years he's going to stay healthy. My last question for you Seth and then uh Devin can finish it off. Um, with the additions of Josh Donaldson and and now uh, Kenta Maeda, is the Central AL Central pretty much done? Let me start by saying that you know the one thing I forgot to mention regarding center field is that Royce Lewis is probably likely to be ready sometime in 2021. So there is some some line there as well. He could be a center fielder. Gilberto Celestino's possibility, and it depends on how Polanco and Arise do in the middle too. As for the AL Central, I mean the Twins are by far the clear favorite. Um, but as I've mentioned in, in your recent shows, 
Cleveland still hasn't traded Lindor, Clevenger, Bieber, Ramirez, and until they do, they're going to be competitive. And I think the White Sox are going to be competitive. I expect all three of those teams to be above 500. Um, and I expect it to be semi-competitive. But I do definitely think the Twins are far and away the favorite. All right, Seth, let's uh, let's put your Karnak hat on, get your fortune ball, get your get your fortune ball out. Give me a bold prediction from the Twins for 2020 on the hitting side and on the pitching side. That is a tough one. I think, uh, how's this? Is 50 home runs for Miguel Sano bold? Yeah, I would call that bold. Okay, let's go with that one on the hitting side. And on the pitching side, (laughs) on the pitching side, wow, that's a tough one. Um, I think, let's see, I think Jake Odorizzi, proves that 2019 wasn't the fluke, and I think that he can be a guy that um, not only repeats as an all-star along with Perrios, but uh, I think he could get Cy Young votes. So let's say Jake Odorizzi gets Cy Young votes in 2020. Wow. For the record, I agree with, for the record, I agree with you on that. I think Odorizzi's a 20-game winner, and I'm going to even say finishes top five in the AL and Cy Young award. I think he's just going to have a dominant year. My bold prediction is Kenta Maeda makes at least 30 starts. It would be great. All right, Seth, uh, I want to thank you, like always, for making the time for us. Uh, you're uh, very gracious to to continually come on the show, even though I know you're busy. Uh We'll we'll have to do this again this spring sometime. Sounds good. Uh, thanks, Travis, and obviously uh, good to talk to you, Devlin, too. You too, All right. Seth, as always. My pleasure. That was Seth Doe's from Twins Daily. Uh, we should have asked him about the winter meltdown. Because I heard that went really well. Yeah, you know, I they had Kent Herbeck there, and that's obviously a very big guest. And then I think they also had Trevor Plouffe there as well. I know in years past, mm-hmm. I think last year they had Kadire there, and I think he pulled out his magic tricks. And I want to say they maybe had Joe Nathan there one year. So, yeah, it's becoming a real big event uh, during Twins Fest. I, I've actually never been to it. It's something... I've kind of thought about going to, but I've just got so many Twin Fest things I want to do that I just, you know, I end up not going. But it looks like a really, really cool event. And, uh, yeah, the the guys over at Twins Daily, man, if you guys don't know about Twins Daily, learn about them. They work their tails off to make sure that we get accurate, great, amazing, knowledgeable, smart coverage on the Minnesota Twins and everybody there works really, really hard and it's a lot of fun to uh it's a lot of fun to read their takes and to uh to to see what they contribute to the uh to the Minnesota media base in for baseball. Yeah, and it seems like every time I I go there there's somebody new writing for them and and they're doing 
such a good job. Um, with that, I want to, uh, we had a chance this afternoon to talk to Brandon Warren from Zone Coverage. I want to play that interview right now, and uh, we'll be back in a, in a few minutes. So enjoy it. Our next guest on Minnesota Sports Weekly, Devlin and and I are are glad to interview uh, Brandon Warren of Zone Coverage. And uh, with that, let's get get to Brandon. Brandon, how's it going? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm good. Uh, I got Devlin Clark here with me, uh, helping out this week. Great, great. Um, my first question. <laughs> hey. My first question for you is: uh, Did you see this anywhere on the periphery? Kenta Maeda was that someone that you saw would think that the Twins would would have interest in? I think if somebody would have asked me if he made sense in a pointed question, I would have said so. But as far as seeing him as a possible target at the outset of the offseason or even a week ago, I would have been very, very skeptical of. And to hear that a third team was involved in that trade, I kind of thought, well, what if it is the Twins? But it wasn't until Doogie Wolfson said, keep an eye on the Twins, to where I thought, okay, well, maybe the Twins are going to get David Price out of this deal. And then when I found out that Price was going to be hanging around, I thought, oh, Antimaeda makes a ton of sense because – He's been outspoken about his desire to remain a starting pitcher, and it seemed like the Dodgers weren't willing to commit to him fully the way he wanted them to. And so I think it makes a ton of sense. I think it's a great trade. But, no, I definitely did not see it coming prior to maybe 10 minutes before it was announced. Now, you wrote about this trade on uh, zonecoverage.com. You wrote a great uh, write-up on that. With my first reaction, obviously being a prospect guy and being a fan of Gratterall, was what are they doing? After having mm-hmm. some time to you know think about it and sleep on it, I really like this trade, especially from the contract point of view. Can you kind of talk about the the value that that he brings in terms of contract to this? Yeah, so the Twins are pretty fairly well protected. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, obviously he's heading into his age 32 season and pitchers don't always age particularly gracefully, but his base salary is only 3.25 million over the next four years. And then incentives are baked in at 15, 20, 25, 30, and 32 starts. And then every 10 innings starting from 90 innings all the way up to 200. So based on some back of the napkin math that I've done, it looks like while he's guaranteed 3.25 million, Incentives can push that up to about $13 million on any given year, which, again, you would happily pay for. He's basically been the equivalent of Hyunjin Ryu the last three years. And so the fact that the Twins didn't get Ryu certainly can be glossed over, but the fact of the matter is the Twins got a similar version of that pitcher, but at a much better price. Granted, like you said, Gratterall's a big-time prospect, but if there's significant worry about his long-term health and viability as a starter – I think the Twins did well to sell high on him. And keep in mind, too, he's a Terry Ryan guy. He's not a 
Ter- Derek Salvi and, and Thad Levine guys. So I'm certain that they're not as they weren't as married to him as Terry Ryan might have been if he was still around. Is is it fair to say that he is not as highly thought of as uh, the other two uh, starters that were uh, Derek Falvey and Thad Levine guys uh, uh, in Duran? And I'm not even going to try to pronounce the other one. That was, that was that was yeah. yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think maybe the ceiling for Gratterall was higher, but it's much less likely to be attained. You look at Belazovic, and he's a big, strong kid who just seems like a better bet to sustain his velocity deep in games, maybe better physical conditioning, maybe just a better body type all around, but hasn't quite had the issues that Gratterall has had. Keep in mind, Gratterall had Tommy John basically the moment he set foot in the Twins organization, and then he battled a shoulder last year, which was a really big deal. And when you look at Duran, I think obviously there's excitement there with the fact that he can hit the upper 90s with his fastball. He's got pretty good secondary stuff. So, yeah, I think the writing on the wall was that if they wanted to move a prospect pitcher, Gratterall, who's a top 30 or 40 prospect by baseball prospectus and a top 100 guy by pretty much everyone else, might have been the guy to go. And So, I mean, I don't know that we were necessarily thinking that way a day ago, but as of right now, to me, in retrospect, it makes a lot of sense. When I first heard that the Twins were the third team, Brandon, my my initial thought was they traded Eddie Rosario. Uh, that's kind of mm-hmm. been the, the, the chatter around town, and then I found out they traded Gratterall and they got Maeda. Um, what's what have you been hearing kind of in terms of if they were able to package Rosario? Because I think the first initial reaction by Twins fans was that's all they got for Gratterall was Maeda. Do you know, have you heard anything about whether or not they tried to package Rosario together and if they couldn't, if they're still planning to trade him or if they're going to stay, uh, stay on par with him for the season? Yeah, my first indication or inclination might have been Rosario being involved as well. But the reality is that Rosario would be kind of superfluous on the Red Sox since they were getting Verdugo and they have Andrew Benintendi in the other corner and Jackie Bradley Jr. in center. And obviously the Dodgers, because they traded Jock Peterson, shows just how highly regarded they feel their outfield depth is. So it was pretty quick that I kind of came to the realization that that wasn't going to be the case. As of right now, I think it's pretty likely they're going to go into next season, or this season rather, with Rosario as their main left fielder. I think they're hoping that maybe his physical talent will translate to a a bounce-back season. Obviously, the on-base percentage was a little bit disappointing. The outfield defense has slipped a bit. But few players in baseball have the back-to-ball skills he has. It's just a matter of honing and refining that approach. And if this year doesn't go well, there's the potential to trade him at the deadline if there's a market or if he does play well and they want to bring up Trevor Larnick or Alex Kirloff. But they can also just non-tender them in the next offseason if they want to wash their hands of them. So they still have some options as far as what to do with Rosario. But at this point, I don't think there's really a need on the team that would be filled by trading him. Whereas when I thought maybe they could trade him for Caleb Smith from the Marlins, I don't think that there's a need for another starter. Um, Speaking of Maeda, what is some of his – talent 
that brought him onto the Twins' radar? So he throws a fastball that's like 90 to 93. It's a, it's a fairly decent pitch. It got hit a little bit last year, but he doesn't throw it that often either. He throws a lot of sliders and a lot of change-ups. The change-up is especially good in terms of shape and depth and deception and that sort of thing. The slider, obviously very good as well. But he throws his fastball about a third of the time, maybe a little bit more, and then the slider's not too far behind that, and the change-up is uh, 25% of the time or so. But it's it's all about swing and miss with him. Only six MLB starters had a higher swinging strike rate among guys who threw at least 150 innings last year. So while he doesn't light up the radar gun, whether it's deception, spin rate, or probably a combination of both, he misses bats, and in his career, in all four seasons, he struck out more than one batter per inning. He keeps the walks in check. He's not a crazy ground ball guy, but that's okay if you've got a, a healthy Byron Buxton in the outfield too. So, I don't know. I mean, again, I think this is a favorable pickup to Hyunjin Ryu, who got a four-year deal worth, I think, $80 million, whereas the Twins, at the very most, will pay Maeda about $50 million for the next four years. Yeah, and that's if if he hits all the uh, escalators you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier. Yep. One 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 big thing that I think uh, people need to uh, or that I'd like to talk about is his playoff experience. He's been in the World Series the last two years. He's got mm-hmm. he's got a three point three one ERA in thirty two and two thirds innings. Rich Hill's been in the playoffs. Josh Donaldson's been in the playoffs. The Twins added a lot of postseason experiences here. How important is that for that clubhouse? and that roster of kind of younger guys going forward? I I don't know how important it is because playoff experience is something you can only get by going to the playoffs. But if you told me that Cody Stashak was going to be a better playoff pitcher because of the struggles he had last year and the same for Tyler Duffy and the same for Trevor May, I would believe that. So I think that that point is well taken, that it's it's only going to help them if they can get back to the playoffs this year. And I also think, too, and I'm going to write about this in zone coverage, I don't think it's any coincidence that pretty – I mean, every I think every free agent they brought in from the outside, so excluding Odorizzi and Pineda, is a player who has um, significant MLB experience and is over the age of 30, in some cases in their mid to late 30s. I, I don't think that's coincidental because guys like Alex Avila have played on very successful teams, teams that have played in the playoffs. Rich Hill, especially true. And Sergio Romo, you know, has won the World Series or two with the Giants. So I think it's 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 a point that needs to be focused on is if they felt like they were exposed as a team that was new to the limelight last year, they've definitely addressed that. But they haven't addressed that just by getting guys who are older or are names, but by guys who can play. And I think it goes back to Terry Ryan telling me maybe five, six years ago, you, you want to sign guys like Torrey Hunter to come in and be leaders but they can't lead if they can't still play. So you got to find that mix of guys like Nelson Cruz who can not only lead, but can still produce. Okay. Um, my, my question is uh, with the pitching staff, uh, by my counting using Minnesota math, uh, the, the Twins currently have – Ten starting pitchers that have made major league starts. How do you see them uh, 
working that whole scenario out? Well, I think your number four and five starters are going to be Homer Bailey and Ulysse Chassin to open the season. I think why that matters is because since they're opening in Oakland, they don't have that built-in day off that will allow them to skip their fifth starter. So they'll play five games in five days right out of the chute, meaning that it will matter that they have five starters lined up, whereas in the last two years, if they opened in Minneapolis, they would have that built-in day off that would allow them to juggle things a little bit. So I think that's how they're going to go, one through five. I think by July 1, they're hoping that it'll be Hill and Pineda instead of Bailey and Chassin. And, again, if, if all those guys remain intact and healthy, that's a good problem to have because then you've got a guy like Bailey as a swingman or Shasin as a swingman. But as fallback options, they're not bad. And it also means, too, that you've got break, uh, you know, ready-made replacements in Lewis Thorpe and Randy Dobnak and, and, and pitchers like that, uh, Devin Smeltzer down at Rochester, who can help you. But who, and I think it's an important point, they're pretty much finished products. And so you're not going to bring up a guy like Devin Smeltzer, and if he gets bombed in one start, you don't have to worry about that ruining his prospect status. He basically is who he is at this point, and so you've got a guy who can help you. And if he struggles, you send him back down, but you don't have to worry about if he's a big-time prospect who's going to be ruined a la Adam Johnson back in the early 2000s. I want to touch back on the trade real quick. I think one of the one of the things that was surprising to me as a Twins fan is that we've always kind of heard the narrative of cheap Polads, they won't go for a number one starter, they won't, you know, the term this year, this offseason was adding impact pitching, and they missed out on Wheeler, and they missed out on Ryu and Bumgarner. And I think that one of the biggest things that surprised me as a Twins fan was that they traded a top prospect to get that. That's not something that the Twins normally do, especially a guy who throws 102 miles an hour. You obviously touched on his um, on his injury concerns earlier, but is, was, do you think that was kind of part of the the effect of of you know, fans' reaction was not so much, oh, my God, we traded Gratterall. It was that we traded a top three prospect in our organization and we got a number three starter. Um, I think I think part of it is just the tendency to want to hoard prospects because of what they could become. And I think it's easy to dream on a guy like Gratterall and the talent that he has, the immense physical potential talent that he has. But the reality is that prospects bust at an alarming rate, and that's even more so true of pitchers. So when you have a chance to cash in some of that capital to get a proven commodity and a fairly stable one at that, um, you know, again, maybe Bruce R. Gratterall becomes a superstar, maybe he doesn't. But And someone brought this up to me on Twitter. Fernando Romero two years ago was a guy people didn't want to trade and had high hopes for a bright future. And now he's kind of an afterthought. I still think he's got a chance to make the opening day bullpen. Maybe he starts in Rochester as a starter this year. There's a lot of options for him. But life comes at you fast as a pitching prospect. And to mitigate some of that risk by going out and getting a guy who could start game one of a playoff series, could start game three, four, or five, to me it makes sense. It just does. And Maeda's got stuff in his secondary numbers and figures that say, 
yeah, maybe if things break right, he could be even better than he's been in these first four years in the big leagues. So I, I think, again, I think fans have a tendency to really gravitate toward prospects. I think they read a lot of things that are very rosy in terms of projections about prospects. But the reality is a lot can happen between now and the end of Bruce Dargretterall's career, and that's a risk they weren't willing to take at this time. Okay. Uh, um, he did it in Japan, but is Maeda built, do you think, to uh, work 200 innings, or are we going to do the Dodger uh, playbook where the, he works 125, 130 innings, and then they send them to the bullpen, or which, which uh, type of plan do you think the Twins would probably uh, do? It's a good question, because he hasn't made 30 starts since his rookie season, and part of that has been the Dodgers kind of moving him around, phantom IL stints, and moving him to the bullpen late in the season, which is kind of strange because the Dodgers of, of any team other than the Yankees could afford to pay whatever it takes to keep him happy. And it was pretty clear, maybe not necessarily unhappy, but he reiterated a strong desire to start. I don't think the Twins are going to mess around with that. I think the reality, excuse me, the reality is that if they get all five of their guys up and rolling and head into October, there's going to be at least one starting pitcher that's going to have to work out of the bullpen or maybe two. So could that be Maeda? Sure. If, if Rich Hill, Jose Barrios and Michael Pineda have really great seasons, then maybe you're looking at, uh, you know, Oda Rizzi probably starting game four. And then maybe Maeda goes to the bullpen because he's got experience out there. There are options for that. But I really think they're going to commit to him as a starter. I think that's going to be their selling point on keeping him happy. Since Minnesota is such a completely foreign concept to him, having played overseas in his native land, and then, of course, in Los Angeles. So I think 200 innings, that's a that's a tough line to cross. But I think 180 is possible. It seems to me he's got a pretty compact, you know, low lowish effort delivery. I feel like Japanese players that we've seen kind of ha- cut from the same mold as far as that delivery have been fairly good at, at withstanding higher, heavier workloads. So to me, I think 160 innings is kind of the baseline, but I think 180 innings is a, is a very real possibility. I don't know that 200 is, but I think the Twins would be very happy with 180. Baseball reference projects him to have nine wins, eight losses, ERA of about – 4.2 in 137 innings uh, for the 2020 season. When the when the trade first broke, I I heard a lot of uh, Kyle Gibson's name being thrown around. Oh, this is they basically traded the top three pitching prospect for a Kyle Gibson throwaway. He's he's not anywhere near Kyle Gibson um, in terms of his best, and that's not a slam on Kyle Gibson. They're just two different pitchers. Can you can you kind of talk about um, what players are are similar to Maeda in terms of you know projections or uh, the way they pitch the seasons they have that kind of thing in your opinions? That's that's a it's an interesting question. I did do a comparison of him and Ryu over the last three years. That was uh, it was somewhat similar. 
Ryu's more of a ground ball guy, but they both had shaky luck on fly balls getting out of the ballpark. Pretty good strikeout numbers, pretty good walk limitations and that sort of thing. But off the top of my head, it, he does remind me a little bit of Jose Barrios in the sense that he's not overwhelmingly a fly ball guy, but you definitely wouldn't call him a ground ball guy either. He keeps the ball in the park generally. Last year, even with the home run swelling across the league, he was still like 1.25, 1.3 home runs per nine, which is, is fairly average without that added context. Um, again, yeah, strikeouts are there. He maybe even strikes out more batters than Barrios does right now. So I think it is a very realistic chance that he can give you what Barrios gives you. And I think a lot of people maybe aren't thinking of it that way. But Barrios obviously has not quite developed into the ace yet that everyone thinks he still can, whereas Maeda is basically a finished product here at 31 going on 32. But I don't think it's an inapt comp, uh, comp to make that Maeda could be a very similar pitcher to Barrios this season unless Barrios takes that much uh, anticipated leap into being an ace. Okay, uh, my last question, and Devlin has one one more. Uh, my my question is with the addition of Josh Donaldson and now the addition of Kenta Maeda, does this pretty much uh, put the Twins as the favorites if they weren't already in the AL Central? Yeah, I think so. I think I think they were already the prohibitive favorite. Maybe not the consensus favorite, but this is just another step in the right direction. I think they were the favorite perhaps even before signing Josh Donaldson. I think Josh Donaldson cemented them as the favorite. And this is just icing on the cake. I think this is a team that's going to win 96, 98 games. I'm not convinced that Cleveland or Chicago is going to win more than 88 or 90. So I think September should be a fairly comfortable ride for the Twins. And again, that will probably only ramp up the angst for October, whether they play the Yankees, Astros, whoever. But I think it's a fairly good chance that they'll defend their AL Central crown successfully and probably by six or eight games. I want to move away from baseball real quick for the last question. I got to sure. know, man, how's Wing how's Wing Tuesday going? It's actually going really great. It's so, if people aren't aware, Jeff Disher and I, he's a friend of mine that works at the same office as I do, we go back and forth buying each other wings and ranking them. So you can find it on my Facebook page or Jeff's Facebook page. But we just had the newsroom yesterday, a restaurant in downtown Minneapolis, Dry Rub, and it finished, I think, third in our rankings but I'll tell you what, D-Spot in Oakdale is the way to go. That's just a terrific place. But for me, from St. Michael, that's a bit of a hike. But we're we're leaving no stone unturned. We're trying every wing place. So if people have a recommendation, find me on Twitter, at Brandon underscore Warren. I'm all ears because uh, we're in search of the greatest chicken wing in all of the Twin Cities area. I've heard that uh, Serums is pretty good. They have some, uh, they have some power to get the deal out. So we, we did serums, but I got there late, and so they were lukewarm by the time we got them down to the office. So we're going to do them again, but I think they're fourth on the list right now. Really, really good place, and like you told me before, owned by a former Minnesota Twins pitcher, so that's pretty cool too. Yeah. 
All right, Brandon, I want to thank you for making the time for us. Uh, we'll have to do this again sometime this spring. You need the time, I'll be there. All right, thanks, Brandon. Appreciate it. Later. That was Brandon Warren of Zone Coverage. It's always great to talk to him. Uh, he is full of knowledge. And I'm I'm just so glad that he finally found the success in 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 his writing because he's worked so hard for it. Wouldn't you say yeah, Brandon's a, a good writer? You know, honestly, he he's a really fantastic writer, and I'm I'm trying to be impartial about this because, you know, I know Brandon as, as a writer, but also as a friend. Um, but as a writer, yeah, I mean, he's come a long way. You know, he's he's very um, he's very he's very critical of himself at times, um, which I think a lot of writers are. You know, when you're doing podcasting or writing or you're creating content, you always want to make sure that you're you're doing the best job you can. And you know, he's got a wife and a young daughter who's who's not only about six months older than my daughter. And I know that, you know, he spends quite a bit of time, you know, at the ballpark and down in spring training and stuff. And his, his writing is fantastic. You know, he, he blends a lot of, a lot of stats with, with humor and he does it in kind of a subtle way that, you know, if you're not a regular reader of his or you don't follow him on Twitter or whatever, uh, you might think, wow, this guy is kind of being sarcastic or wow, this, you know, he can come off the wrong way. But, yeah, Brandon, you know, in addition to being a friend, he's a great writer. Um, he's he's my he's actually my favorite uh, twins, uh, twins writer when you, um, you know, take out the national writers, the Wetmores, the Mackies, the Doogie Wolfson, the guys like that. When you're looking at, you know, kind of the the, the next tier, and that's no disrespect to any of those guys. Um, I would say I, I I definitely you know think Brandon's Brandon's number one for me. And and you know he's like you said he's overcome just so much stuff. He's had some he's had some uh, mental health issues like I have. And you know he's he's a he. Let me put it to you this way: the best way I can describe Brandon is as good of a writer as he is. He's that much better of a person he's he's a great writer and he's a great human being and i'm so happy for all the success he's had yeah i agree whenever i'm in the cities i usually uh, find it find time to have lunch with brandon and he's always willing to to drive out of his way just to uh accommodate me and and that means the world to me. And uh, his, well, you you said a a great statement. As good of a writer as he is, he's a much better person. And he's one of the few people I feel like I can be honest and 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 t- tell him things that I don't tell other people. And he'll give me his honest opinion, and 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 that means a lot to me. Yeah, I I agree completely. 
he uh he's always trying to tweak his material to to get more readers and sometimes i wonder does he really need to do that because he has plenty of readers at least i think so i i read all this stuff and i wonder why he thinks he needs to change things up cuz uh everybody i know reads this stuff so do you, do you think he needs to change things up all all the time you know i don't think it's so much changing things up as as i think it is and just taking pride in what he does you know he brandon's one of those people where he he wants to be the he wants to be the best at what he does and he just you know he he never thought that he would get to the point where he has now I mean he's he's almost a five thousand Twitter followers and the guy comes from a small town and and to be able to to do the things he's done talk to the people that he's been able to you know he's a member of the Twins media and he's got the credentials and all that stuff and writes for zone coverage and he did he, he did the talking twins podcast for a while and he did um <clears throat> stories from the six one two which I wish he would bring back. I thought that was a great uh YouTube series that he only did a couple episodes of but um yeah I, I think for him it's more just being proud of what he does and it's wanting to put out the best possible product for his listeners and or readers or whatever the case may be and and he does a phenomenal job at that. Yeah, uh, I I totally agree. He's one of my favorite writers too. Uh, it's hard for me to say I like this one better than this one because the twins are blessed with a lot of good writers. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The twins, like I said earlier, you know the the twins daily and. And and the other uh, media outlets that the Twins have here in town is is one of the better fan centered is one of the best fan centered things that that Twins fans have, and I would encourage Twins fans to check that out at TwinsDaily.com. You're gonna find you're gonna find high quality articles. You're gonna find information that that you didn't know. You're going to find stats used in a way that may make you rethink the way that you look at the game of baseball. You're going to find stats that you probably don't know the meaning of. And they break it down for you in a really clear and educational but also very fun way. And everybody over at Twins Daily is just fantastic. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Uh, we'll be joined in just a few minutes by Andy, also known as He Hate Me on Twitter. Uh, he's joining us now, and we'll talk some gopher basketball. Andy, how's it going? Good. How are you doing, Travis? I'm, I'm excellent. I'm joined by Devlin Clark. Uh, and uh, we'll talk some go for basketball. 
big game tonight, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you about that. What's your prediction for tonight? Well, I'm hoping for a a big win for the Gophers. I mean, they they need this one for sure. Not just because it's Wisconsin, but where they are in the standings. This is kind of a do or die time. If they lose this one, they're back to 500 overall. So I'm I'm hoping that this is the night they can get the fans behind them and rally to to win. But Wisconsin's also coming off a big win. They just beat Michigan State their most recent game. So it's uh, it's going to be a tough one. Yeah, you know, I think one of the bigger wins that they've had in program history, I would even go so far as to say, at least in the last 10 to 15 years, was when they beat number three ranked Ohio State this year. And then they beat them again um, a couple of weeks ago, 62 to 59. You got you talked about talked about Wisconsin and and how deep the Big Ten is. You got Cassius Winston and and Michigan State. How how important is it for the Gophers to to play well here towards the end of the season, going into the NCAA tournament? And secondly, how much does that win over Ohio State help them? Well, I, th- I think it's good. I mean, anytime you can sweep a team in the Big Ten, I mean that that base, you know, it means you won a game on the road, which is, and some people have said, is nearly impossible this year. It's not, but it's uh, you're not going to count on those too often. So I think just looking at where they are in the stands, I mean, there's a ton of teams right now. You have probably five or six teams kind of jumbled up around 500, 500 record in the conference. And so the Gophers really, in order to make the NCAA tournament, they need to start jumping some of those teams. Now some people will say, well, the Big Ten, you know, this could be one of the years where the Big Ten gets in eight, nine, ten teams potentially, but at the same point, you know, you're 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 leaving that up to chance, if, you know, whether the committee's going to pick you because you're so low in the standings. And there still is a bunch of people who say if your record is barely over 500 overall, why would we put you in the tournament? And And every game is a big, you know, as far as these net rankings, every game seems to be – a quad win or or quad one or quad two victory. So it's not it's not like the Gophers are the only team picking up all these quad win, quad two to, uh, games here. Yeah, the 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 Gophers have struggled lately. What do they need to improve on to uh, start getting some of these wins where they're losing uh, tough games like that Illinois game where they came back from 13 to get within one and then some free throws and they lost by eight. What, uh, what do they need to improve to uh, finish off a game like that? Well, I know the last time we talked, it was a lot about Gabe Kelscher too. I mean, I, I just think they need, they need more of a balanced scoring attack right now. Every game that they've won, it's pretty much coming from O'Tour and Carr. And obviously Carr did not have a good shooting game, neither did Kelsher against Illinois. And when you're missing, Peyton Willis is back tonight, so that will help. That should help. But when you're missing a couple of those guys and you don't have any other options to go to with bad shooting nights, then then you're going to be in trouble, you know?
Um, what about uh, Daniel Oturo? What what does he need to do to improve against uh, the double teams? It seems like he really struggles once they double down on him. What what can he do differently to uh, find the open guy or or get through the double team and and get an easy basket? Well, I think he just <clears throat> number one needs to look for that. You know, prior to committing to you know you, you got to play within the game. So that was one thing that when Mur- Jordan Murphy was kind of struggling as a sophomore, I think it was where. Richard Patino kind of said, just let the game come to you. So I, I think with Oturu, when he gets the ball, naturally there's going to be a second or even a third defender that collapses on him pretty quick. He needs to kind of look right away for that first that, or that second defender to come. He needs to be willing to pass that ball fairly quick and then kind of wait for the game to come to him as far as when he'll get his opportunities. I mean, you know he's going to score, but the, as soon as he gets the ball and the defense collapses on him, He's got to be able to kick because the defenders are coming, and you know they're the the story of this whole year is they want someone else besides you know Carr or Otuero to beat him. So that's something that he's got to be aware of. Another uh, problem that I've noticed is their uh, lack of of rebounding in some of these games. I look back at that Michigan State game. They killed us on the boards, and that led to runouts and easy baskets for the Spartans. Uh, is there something they can do uh, technically to uh, improve uh, the rebounding? Well, they could probably start playing if if he's able to stay on the court more. It would probably be Jarvis Homer. So I just think. With with the lineup that they have, the, the guys that they start, Demir is not a great rebounder. He's not too athletically gifted, so it's not like he's going to be uh, cleaning up the glass. You know, they really do struggle on defensive rebounding. Other teams get a lot of second opportunities, third opportunity chances, and they just the the guards, the three guards, don't have a ton of size. Carr's probably their second best rebounder as far as starters. And then when you go to the bench, you're not looking at too much. You know, with Trey Williams and Michael Hurd, they don't play a ton. But when they do, they're not necessarily guys who are going to get a ton of boards underneath. So, really, it's Omersa. But, you know, the the debate there is if you put Omersa in there instead of Demir, you're losing a lot of offensive capability or spacing because Omersa is pretty much a guy that's just going to score right next to the basket. Is it fair to say Omersa has been a disappointment in a Gopher uniform? Uh, I I think there's there's a case for that, but I think he also was a guy that I, I just he kind of was a tweener forward almost coming out of high school. People were projecting him as a small forward, power forward, and he's almost been a he's pretty much been a four five actually. I mean, he's when he did play a little bit last year when. The team was down. Eric Curry and then Mott Stockman missed some time too. He was he was kind of a backup center, so I think they've kind of used him in that role. It's just one of those things where, as a high school player, he actually did a lot more than just set picks, get rebounds, and then dunk it. I mean, he 
he has some skill to him, but I don't think they've been able to really utilize that yet. So he's, you don't have to think, you don't have to look at the roster too hard to figure out. He could be a pretty big piece next year. I mean, they need him to, to be, you know, do more than just the dirty work because Oturo could leave early and Alihan Demir is a grad, grad transfer senior. So, they don't have a lot of options right now in the front court next year. Is is uh, Mashburn? Is he? Uh, uh, what position does he play? He's more of a combo guard. I mean, he's he's actually a pretty. You know, I don't know if the the height is somewhere around six one, maybe. I mean, maybe six oh. two, but he's he's a small combo guard. They'll probably use him. I mean, I, I foresee him next year coming off the bench. And kind of being a spark plug offensively, I, he's a really good shooter. He can handle the ball a little bit, but I don't think he's going to be the full-time point guard or anything like that. If uh, Arturo leaves, what can they do up front to, so they so they don't get killed on the boards? Well, the first, I mean, it's a lot of. It's hard to put any stock into what Eric Curry is going to be after all the, the knee surgeries he's had now, but he's still on the roster next year. So I think with him hopefully healthy, that's that's one body that they'll have. He's not he's probably not going to be somebody who moves around too quick like he did his freshman year. And I don't know if he was ever that quick, but he he was a smart defender and was able to give them a boost, quite a quite a big boost off the bench as a freshman. So I think that's that's the guy that you kind of got to circle and hope that things go well, and he's able to give them a bunch of minutes. And then Jarvis Lomarsa, I mean, he's they're they're going to have to give him a bigger role if if Oturo leaves. And then uh, you know after that, it's there's a there's a freshman coming in next year, Martise Mitchell, who's probably about six ten, but he's pretty pretty skinny. And then uh, Sam Freeman's the the freshman right now that it's pretty clear Patino does not trust, so he doesn't doesn't ever see the floor. It, it, I was wondering about this. It, does Patino should he be getting criticized for not using his bench? Well, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I I, I think yes. If if you don't use your bench, you should be you know that's kind of the knock on him is that if you don't have quality players coming off the bench at the end of the day that's on you. So yes, you know I I don't know what the story is every from year to year as far as why he doesn't try more guys. You know I think they've been trying to use this Isaiah Enan a little bit more. He obviously got in got some minutes against Illinois, but like a couple that are freshmen this year. I mean, there's there's four freshmen. Obviously, Trey Williams is the main guy, but the other three just, they're more, they kind of came in as developmental players, and that's on Patino. I mean, you got to have guys that are ready to play, ready to contribute, and for whatever reason this year, he, and kind of like last year, I mean, you got guys last year like Murphy and Coffey and Dupree McBrayer who were playing nearly the whole game towards the end of the season, and this year it's Carr and Oturu who, and Kalsher, who all three pretty much play, uh, you know, north of 35 minutes a night, 35 to 38 minutes a night. Is uh, Gabe Kelsher 
Was he a flash in the pan last year, or do you think he'll come out of this shooting slump? I I think he I think he's a really talented shooter. I think this year has just been, you know, I don't know if it's because Carr is more of a ball dominant player, whereas last year their point guard obviously was Amir Coffee. So Coffee could do some things, but he wasn't going to try to go isolation the whole, t- you know, probably run more of a motion offense where everybody kind of touched the ball. And this year it's a lot more car and Oturu as far as pick and roll between the two of them. And car has obviously has a tendency to over dribble sometimes. So it's, it's a different look for, for Kelsher this year, I think, but naturally, you know, shooters are going to go through slumps and you got to hope at some point he, especially a game like tonight against Wisconsin, hopefully he can come through. What is your thoughts on uh, Brad Davidson? <laughs> well, I I think it was the right call that Wisconsin. Uh, well, it was more of the Big Ten suspended Brad Davidson for one game. I think the you know I'm like any other fan who's seen some of the stuff that's happened from in some of these games. You know, it's not every game. He, it's just hard, one of those hard things to say. I don't, you know, I don't think he's a bad person or he's intentionally hurting people, but for some reason some of these things are coming up, and I think it was the right call for the Big Ten to suspend him because it has happened more than once, and there's been a couple occasions when you know, it looks like he was doing some things that almost hurt somebody but didn't quite. I know the last year the deal where he stuck his leg under Jordan Murphy when he was going up for a rebound, so it's uh, it's kind of sad to see in some sense, just because the the story on David and what a great what a great person he is. So, um, you know, we'll see wh- where this goes. My question is: Is Richard Pitino the right coach in your mind. He had a good year last year, got won a game in the NCAA tournament. Do you think he's the right guy or is is he on the hot seat in your in your estimation? I think I think what happened last year and then, you know, a combination of what happened last year where they they did have a positive year, they did win a game in the tournament. And then this year, staying relevant after a tough start, I think that gives him next year. I, I'd be very surprised if Mark Coyle made a, dis, a change at head coach. As as you're looking at the roster, I mean, if a tour does stay, you're you're looking at most of the guys, the the meaningful guys back next year. So I think it's more of a you kind of kind of got to put this year together with next year and see what happens. You know, Kerwin Walton is still out there from Hopkins, and if they can land him, I think there's a lot of positive momentum next year. And I, I, I think Patino deserves another year, just based on the fact that they haven't given up. I mean, they've even in some of these games, like last week against Illinois. I mean, they've kept it close. And in other years when things went really bad, they looked like they were ready to end the season. You know, by early February or so. So it's, it's, uh, I think he definitely deserves next year, but it's as far as long-term, I mean, I think it, it's just one of those things where every couple of years you got to reassess where things are and make sure the program's in the right spot. Cause 
especially the local talent. You know, you want you want to try to keep as many kids home as possible, build some momentum that's for the been, program, uh, and hopefully that's, that's the direction problem. they're going in. That's been a problem this year. They haven't been able to get any of the – look at Wisconsin. They have pretty much all Minnesota kids on their roster, and the Gophers are looking everywhere around the country – to get the the kids to fill out the roster, do you see that as a problem? Yeah, I mean, I I I prefer to to have some. I mean, I, the whole team doesn't need to be made up of Minnesotans, but when you have these guys that you can create relationships with when they're in ninth and tenth grade and get them to Williams Arena for for games whenever you want versus trying to, you know, recruit around the entire country. I, I just think it's easier to, to to recruit in your backyard. So, and then seeing Wisconsin next year, I think they're, they're going to have six or seven guys on their team from Minnesota. And so, yeah, it's disappointing. Uh, Curlin Walton, uh, what do you think about him right now? Do you think the Gophers are in the battle for him? Yeah, I think they're in a battle. I it's it's hard to say. It's just because he decided to because he decided to commit in the spring. It's just one of those deals where you're not quite sure what team at any point can kind of jump in. I mean, it's just an open door, and you know he could wait until um, you know April or whenever when the college season's over and some of the guys, some of the blue blood teams start opening up some scholarships cuz somebody leaves early for the NBA or somebody decides that they're not happy with their playing time so they transfer so i it's it's hard to say but you'd hope that the fact that he's been to so many games this year as a guest of the Gophers to you know on these unofficial visits to watch the Gopher games you would hope that that's a positive what about uh, um? What was I gonna say? Uh, do you think uh, the Gophers have a a good chance to make the tournament, or am I grasping at straws? Well, they gotta win tonight because it's you're at home and against a team that you're kind of you know I'd, I'd say Minnesota and Wisconsin are in a pretty similar you know I don't it's hard to pick one team over the other one as far as who's better and all that but you really have to start winning these games at home if, if you're not able to steal a cup on the road you got to win pretty much every game at home from here on out so um, you know tonight could be the a sign whether they're whether they're for real or whether they're not. And I guess the other option too is I don't, I don't foresee it happening, but any team in the big 10, of course, could get hot come uh, big 10 tournament time and make it, make the tournament that way. If you happen to go all the way, but this is, uh, you know, I think they're, they're the ninth, eighth or ninth seed, something like that right now. And I just don't see a path where that, potentially would happen, especially when 
the lack of depth that they have to win three or four games in the Big Ten tournament in that many days. It just it's, you know, it's like last year when they won a game or two. I think they won two last year, and they just didn't have any legs on that third day because all those guys were playing so many minutes. So it's uh, you know they they need to start winning these home games for sure. Um. Let's go back to Arturo. Uh, it seems like he gets bullied in the post by some centers like that kid from Michigan State. Uh, I can't remember his name. Uh, Tillman, I think. What? I think it was Tillman, yeah. Yeah, Tillman, yes. And in and, uh, other games, too, uh, in the Illinois, he got bullied a little bit. But uh, that doesn't surprise me because he's 290 pounds. But do you think uh, another year at Minnesota would help Oturo become a more ready uh, professional? Well, I, I I think it would help him. You know, I don't know what it would do for. I haven't looked too much about draft stock stuff recently, but. I think either way, whether he decides to go pro this year or whether he decides to stay, you know, the the goal for him will will be the same at both places. To he needs to bulk, continue to bulk up so he can handle the bigger bodies, and I think that's a good challenge for him if he does decide to come back. Is continue to upgrade his his body and and be able to handle the physical play of the Big Ten. I mean, you would hope some of these guys when that that's going to be a uh, a focus of his whether he stays or goes. Of course, it's going to be an issue in the in the NBA when he gets up there. That's the first thing they'll they do with a lot of those guys who aren't you know completely filled out as they they get them to add weight. And I I think Oturu, you know if he if he gets a if he gets people telling him that he's a first round pick, I think he should you know do what's best for him and probably head to the NBA this year. But I, I don't think there would be anything wrong with staying for one more year, bulking up, and then, you know, potentially going even higher in the in the draft next year. Um, well, does it surprise you that uh, Amir Coffey uh, hasn't sniffed the, the NBA this year? He's been in the G League. And he he literally didn't get drafted. I don't think maybe he did. I'm not positive about that. Um, are you surprised that that Coffee hasn't gotten called up? Yeah, I I think he's logged some minutes. You know, I have to I have to double check on when he's gone up. I what I do know is that he was battling some injuries, kind of in the fall into the winter. And so I think that was one of the issues why he wasn't getting too much of a, there wasn't too much options out there for him to get called up, but no, I'm not, I'm not surprised that, uh, you know, he's, it's just one of those guys that, especially on a team like the Clippers, I mean, they're, they have championship aspirations. They're, they have two of the best wings in the league on one team. So it's, there's going to be competition for, playing time with that organization and now if you look at 
someone like Minnesota that just made a huge trade last night and, you know, took out five, six players on their team. If Amir Kathu was a two-way player on on the Timberwolves, he'd probably be suiting up tonight. So it's all about opportunity where you where you go. And I'm sure if for whatever reason it doesn't work out this year, the Clippers, he'll be he'll be with some other organization next year and hopefully he gets a shot. Uh, last question. Uh, predictions on a, on a score for tonight. Uh, it's, it always seems like Wisconsin, when they come in, it's kind of a defensive struggle here. So somewhere in the, in the mid to low sixties, I'll, I'll just, I'll say Gophers win by a few, maybe like a 65, 62 type of game, but I'm, uh, I'm not entirely confident behind that because until Wisconsin is just one of those teams that seems to really get the better half of they they seem to get to have their luck on their side a lot of times. I know Minnesota has has beaten them. I think it was last year they split with them. So it's it's not like they're you know they don't have they don't have some of the stud players that they've had the last few years. And by the same point, the Gophers haven't been you know they're not the most consistent team. So we'll see what happens. But hopefully they pull it, pull it out tonight. All right, uh, Andy, thanks for uh, calling in. Uh, we'll have to talk uh, down the line. Sounds great. Thanks, guys. Yep. Thanks, Andy. Uh, our next guest, uh, I'm sorry about that. I, we must have got disconnected. No, that's okay. That is not uh, our our next guest is uh, Ted Schwerzler of uh, Off the Baggy, and uh, we can talk some baseball again. Absolutely. Let's talk baseball. Ted, how's it going? Ted, how are you two? Excellent, excellent. Thanks for uh, calling in. After last week's debacle, <laughs> it's all right. All right. Uh, my first question is: What was your initial reaction when you heard about the trade of Gratterall for Maeda? Um, I think it's a lot different than where I stand at it now. Um, you hear of a prospect that big of name being moved, your initial reaction is, wow, um, doesn't really matter who we got. It wasn't enough kind of thing. Um, but really the more I, I sat back and looked at it, um, you know, the twins had already floated out there that he was going to start the year in the bullpen, which if they thought he was going to be a starter at all, it would have either made sense for him to be an opener or start as that fourth or fifth guy, or even start in triple a and, and build up some innings. Um, so they obviously didn't see that plan for him, and that also is kind of indicative of him being, you know, below uh, Wanderan and uh, Jordan Blazovic as well um, as far as starting ranking. So any day you can trade a reliever um, for a top 50 pitcher, I mean, you should do that 100 times out of 100. First of all, Ted, I want to say happy happy series one release date to you, sir, as a fellow card collector. <laughs> this is like yes. the Super Bowl yes. of days for us. So happy uh, happy release day to you. Thank you. 
you look like uh, based on your Twitter, you're going to have a fun evening. He's got a got a picture of about eight or ten boxes of 2020 Top Series one to open. So I'm sure he'll be yeah. uh, making me and lots Stay of other people. Stay occupied for a while. Yeah, it looks like you uh, hit up your local Target and Walmart. Stopped into the LCS and grabbed a couple things. Yep. Excellent. Excellent. Let's let's talk a little bit about Luis Arias. I think he's he's a really fascinating uh, player. You know, you obviously saw glimpses of him last year. A lot of fans remember that at bat against Diaz in the Mets when he came in as a pinch hitter and was down 0-2 and drew the walk. People are comparing him to you know Tony Gwynn and Wade Boggs and things like that, but he's kind of a change the change of pace guy in the lineup. You know, you look at the lineup and they've got a lot of they got a lot of power guys. They have a lot of guys who like to be aggressive early in the counts, and then you almost have Luis Arias who almost is kind of Joe Mauer-esque and he likes to be patient and wait for his pitch. Does that kind of change the tone of the lineup by throwing him in there, not only with how good he is, but kind of the the way he approaches the at-bat? Yeah, I think he's going to be an interesting guy to see where Rocco hits this year. I mean, you have Max Kepler leading off who really isn't a leadoff hitter. Um, I mean, he's not a patient hitter. He attacks early. Um He's able to control the strike zone, but that's almost a guy that you'd like to hit with a couple a couple people on. Um, and Arias, being that his skill set is more um, reflective of a guy that's going to hit, you know, singles, doubles, um, he'd be an ideal guy to have on at the top of the lineup. But I think, yeah, wherever they hit him, and, and he could be an interesting guy to put in between some of your big power sluggers because you're not just going to be able to, you know, blow fastballs by three or four guys in a row um, and, and hope that they're – you know, going to miss while swinging for, for bigger contact. But yeah, I think his approach at the plate and what he brings to the twins is going to be huge. Um, you know, going forward, he's one of the easiest guys to say or go out on a limb that he'll win a batting title. I don't know that that necessarily comes to fruition, but it certainly looks like he's capable of it. Um, I'd like to see his defense get a little bit better um, this year. I don't know how much of that is reflective of playing next to Jorge Polanco, but I mean, he's a guy that is a staple in your lineup. You have to have him in there every day, and you want him in there every day. Um, speaking of uh, the lineup, uh, Josh Donaldson in his career has hit second quite a bit. If you were Rocco Baldelli, where would you hit Donaldson? I am a terrible person to ask. Um, I have not, I've done a couple roster projections thus far. I have not obviously done one since my Ada last night. Um, I haven't thought at all about the lineup. I think that they're going to have a ton of awesome problems to have. I mean, they have five or six guys that could all hit second or third um, in, you know, Kepler, Sano, Cruz. Um, I don't love his approach, but even Eddie Rosario, there's just a ton of guys that they have to throw at the middle of their lineup. And they're probably going to end up batting, you know, Byron Buxton or a Marwin Gonzalez type, um, you know, eighth or ninth pretty often. And that's a guy that's probably going to put up something like an 800, 850 OPS. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Do you, with, with some of the changes that are, being implemented this year, mainly, you know, the 26th man on the roster and then the three batter rule. 
do you see the way do you see the Twins or other teams in Major League Baseball changing the way they they pull they pull pitchers or they or whoever they face? Do you see a different strategy being used with those, or are they just going to kind of stick with hey, what let's go with what got us here? Yeah, I think the Twins are an interesting case because last year they had one of the best bullpens in baseball and they really didn't have a loogie. Um, They didn't have any true specialists and they had a couple guys with reverse splits too. So, I mean, when you're dealing with that, you really don't care who's coming to the plate. I mean, sure, there's a couple guys that maybe you'd prefer a righty or a lefty, but there were very few instances where Rocco felt compelled um, based on who was at the plate. Uh, handedness-wise, to make pitching decisions. Obviously, you know, he he made moves based on who the opposing batter was, but I really think that they're one of those teams that they're not going to get, you know, pinched by that, which it's actually interesting. I I think it was maybe uh, Tom Froming brought it up the other day on on Twitter um, after the Indian Zip projections came out from Fangraphs that, you know, guys like Adam Simber and I believe Aaron Savale, um, and then they had they had they have someone else um, in their in their uh, bullpen that's projected to be pretty good from a bullpen as a whole. But a lot of those guys are platoon dominant, and so it'll be interesting to see how they're utilized. If you know you have a really tough lefty coming up or a really tough righty, and then you have to switch you know twice throughout the uh, throughout the three batter minimum. So. Okay, um, I want to go back to uh, Kenta Maeda. Uh, what does he do well that that is going to benefit the Twins? I mean, from a from a pure numbers standpoint, I tweeted this out earlier this afternoon. He's literally a clone of Jose Barrios. His numbers from his career, and if you remove um, Barrios's awful fourteen starts in what was that 2016 I believe they're they're um Maeda's four years in Barrios then would be three years in their numbers are spot on obviously Barrios has a little bit more fastball velocity and you would hope that a guy that's younger like Barrios is would still be developing and have a little bit more to show you um but Maeda is absolutely capable of being a front of the rotation starter and the idea that he's this third or fourth starter he was pitching behind guys like Clayton Kershaw and Walker Buehler and Jin Ryu. Like they had one of the best rotations in baseball. It wasn't his um, ability that was holding him back. It was more so his teammates. So I think he's, he's a, a perfect fit for the twins. I love that he's got a next to nothing contract. And obviously the twins would happily pay all of those, uh, all of those incentives. I think he's a great guy to add, and they still have room both financially and prospect capital-wise to add at the deadline if they need to as well. I think one. I think you touched on something interesting there, and that's that's the trade deadline. Given the fact that we just saw the front office within the last three weeks, the front office has handed out the, the biggest free agent contract in team history, and now the Kentamaeda trade for the number four or five prospect or number one pitching prospect or whatever that the Twins have. Do you think it's more likely if the Twins 
are in a division race or an AL home field advantage race at the trade deadline that the front office is more willing to trade a top prospect, maybe like an Eddie Rosario or somebody like that, to get the help that they need because they see that that World Series window is open, or do you think they're going to hold off on that? So hopefully people still read what I plan to write tomorrow at Twins Daily because you just hit on it. <laughs> um, I think that uh, Gratterall being moved really shows where they're kind of at in an evaluation process. They have a lot of redundancy from a farm system standpoint, and their window is open now, which means their window is open for probably the next three to four to five years, right? So you get to a point where you're going to start cashing in some of those projects or prospects at the at the major league level, but not all of them can be cashed in. So Gratterall was deemed as a guy that probably was the most likely headed to the bullpen, probably wasn't where they saw um, rotation help coming from when looking at some of those other prospects. Now you get, you know, three, four more months to evaluate where you're at with uh, Trevor Larnack and Brent Rooker and Alex Kirloff, and you get a little bit longer to figure out is Royce Lewis a shortstop or is he a center fielder, and you get a little bit longer to figure out is Keone Cavaco developing this early on or do we want to move him. All of those kinds of things, I think, give them time to then evaluate, you know, on their own side and then see where they're at in June or July. Um, And you you don't sign a guy like Josh Donaldson or you don't make a trade for a Kenta Maeda to then say, yeah, these prospects are are awesome and they're going to be up in 2022 or 2023 and help us then. You want to have the deck as stacked as possible now. And that's not to say you go fleece your farm system, you know, for a year or two. But I think absolutely we're going to see, you know, if if they're in position and there's guys out there, I think they're not going to be afraid to make a move that helps their um, their chances both this year and, and into the future. Um, what about uh, Byron Buxton? Is, is, is Devlin brought it up? to someone else and I I was curious your thoughts is this a make or break year for Byron Buxton or do they have more time down the road to to see what he can do I think the idea of you know make or break is a tough um, label just because that also kind of ties in production and when he's been on the field I mean last year he had an 827 OPS in 87 games like he that's an that's an MVP candidate with with the defensive ability he has so from a from a peer production standpoint he's shown and obviously that's a pretty limited sample given you know what he's he's been previously but he's shown that that is there I think there has to be you know, some level of durability shown. And I, I think that the twins have shied away from um, maybe impressing upon him that he can't play defense the way he does. Um, but they've obviously worked on positioning with him, starting him deeper, trying to put him in spots where he doesn't have issues flare up. But I mean, he also got a concussion diving on a ball that was, you know, just charging in on, on the grass. So, um, I think it will be an important year to see him hopefully stay healthy more than anything. And I think what it 
ultimately comes down to is, is he a guy that you want to go into 2021, 2022, um, and continue to go year to year on? Or is he a guy that you want to try and extend and, and keep here for a long time? When you, we touched on it earlier, the Twins legitimately have three guys, Max Kepler, Luis Arias, and Mitch Garver, who all batted leadoff at some point last season. You're Rocco Baldelli. You're writing the lineup card. Who are you putting in, lead, in that leadoff spot? Are you going with a with a power guy like Garver, which, you know, is, is not the norm, but, you know, given the fact that he produced so well last year, do you want to do that and give, give your team a chance to be up one nothing right away? Or do you go with a more traditional guy like Arias who – who deepens the lineup, takes pitches, allows your two, three, four hitters to see what the pitcher's going to throw and, and likely gets on base. Yeah, I think the, the discussion for me certainly comes down to one of those two. Um, as much as Max Kepler uh, likes leading off, and it sounded like it wasn't um, his decision or anything like that. It was more Rocco approached him and said that's where he was going to hit to start last year. Um, but I would go either Arias or Garver, depending on what you'd like to accomplish. I think both are high on base guys. If you'd like to, you know, set the table more often for a Josh Donaldson or a Max Kepler, whoever's batting behind them, sure, then go with the guy that doesn't strike out, that walks, um, that's going to see a handful of pitches. Um, if you view him as a bit more valuable to break up your lineup, which I think he obviously accomplishes a bit more than Mitch Garver. Mitch Garver is relatively redundant when it comes to a similar profile to uh, uh, Nelson Cruz or a Sano or Donaldson, other than he doesn't strike out at the same rate. But um, if, if you're not worried about that, then I think you go Arise. If you want to use Arise in the middle of your lineup to break up some of your power, I have no problem with Mitch Garver being a leadoff guy. And, yeah, some of his home runs are going to be wasted because they're going to be solo shots. But you know what? You lead one nothing like you said then. Um. Speaking of uh, Mitch Garver, um, they signed Alex Avila to kind of, I think, tutor him so he can take that next step to uh, become an elite catcher. Uh, I think offensively he's as good as as they come, but I, I think he could improve a little bit defensively. You may totally disagree with me, and that that's fine. Um, what does where do you see uh, Mitch Garver right now defensively? He's about um, league average. I mean, he but and that's not said as a slight because you know a year a year ago at this time he was substantially below league average. Um, so the work he put in with Tanner Swanson last winter was absolutely huge. He elevated his game in a big way. He's got better defensive numbers right now than Avila does. Um, but I think Avila brings that veteran presence that can kind of, hey, these are some things I've tried, you know, let's work through this, let's do that. Um, and Tanner Swanson being gone and on the Yankees staff will be interesting now too because um, I would imagine Mitch isn't just going to, you know, reach out and text Tanner and say, hey, how can I change this? Um so he'll have to work through some, uh, you know, new techniques and continue refining things. But I know that, uh, you know, in talking and listening to Mitch, 
Um, he takes an incredible amount of pride in the work that he put in last winter. And if there's somebody uh, not thrilled about the electronic strike zone, it is absolutely him because that was a, a massive focus for him was getting his pitchers more strikes. Let's switch gears a little bit. Let's let's talk about the coaching side of it because I don't think uh, I don't think a lot of people realize how big of a loss losing James Rosen was. When you look at that, you know obviously the Twins replaced Rosen, but when you look at like the pitching coach Wes Johnson and what he was able to get out of Odorizzi, do you look at a guy like Kenta Maeda and say? he could possibly have a career year this year or even look at Oda Rizzi and go, he, this is what he did last year. This is what Wes Johnson was able to get out of him. He's going to be even better this year. What, what are your expectations kind of for the, for the twins rotation in terms of Wes Johnson's ability to kind of unlock any, um, I guess maybe potential or anything else that they may have? Yeah, you touched on Rousen first. Um, I think they're in okay to good hands there um, from at least – I think they're in great hands from a replacement standpoint, but Rousen absolutely was a, a big um, influencer in getting the most out of guys last year. Um, I think Edver, Edgar Varela is going to do a good job, um, and obviously there's some continuity with Rudy Hernandez staying as well, and he's not just an assistant anymore. Um, he's a co-hitting coach. Um, with Wes Johnson, you know, they were very, um, uh, what's the word, very dedicated, or that's not the word I'm looking for, but they were very um, locked in on sliders this offseason. I mean, they went and got Matt Whistler. Um, Maeda has a has a nice slider. Um, Rich Hill uses his off-speed stuff a lot. Like, they went out and got guys that Wes obviously had input to say, hey, I can work with this, or I think I can help them, or, you know, I like where they're at already. And he's often seen as this velocity guru, which he is, and helps to add guys, um, you know, uptick. But neither Maeda or uh, or Rich Hill are fireballers. So, um, you know, I think he is very influential in how they're going to roll out their pitching staff. And I think, you know, Derek Selby is credited with pretty much everything that Indians did from a pitching standpoint and really developing that infrastructure with what the twins have brought in from, you know, college coaching ranks and other minor league coaching ranks into their system. This isn't just a Wes Johnson at the major league thing. This is a, everybody that's pitching in the twin system is getting ridiculously high level um, critique and coaching and, performance adjustments that are going to show up at the major league level. Uh, let's go back to uh, Maeda and uh, actually the whole pitching staff. Uh, by my count, they have 10 options through the year in for starting pitching. Some are, are, are young like uh, Dobnik, uh, Thorpe, and uh, Smelter probably are going to end up back in AAA. And then you got uh, Pineda and Rich Hill that are injured and suspended. How, uh, how are they going to 
use one once they get Pineda and Rachel back, how are they gonna use their depth to win games? Yeah, I think you know, that's an awesome problem to have. The twins only had ten guys make starts last year and the top five guys made all but like sixteen starts. It it was a ridiculous amount of durability and health and effectiveness really. Um but the two years prior to that, and while one of them was terrible, the other one um, resulted in a in a postseason berth. And those two years, they threw 16 different starters. So I don't think that you can ever have too much depth. Um, I'm a huge Lewis Thorpe believer. I think he is going to have a breakout, you know, 2020 if that's his shot, or 2021 whenever he gets significant runs. And they don't have to fire that bullet on opening day because they'll have a, a full rotation and. Randy Dobnak and Devin Smelter, they worked their way into it last year, and, and they competed. Um, Griffin Jacks and Sam Clay were both um, invited to uh, Major League Spring Training. I mean, Griffin Jacks, I, I was shocked that he didn't get selected as a Rule 5 pick. I think he could be pitching as a fourth or fifth starter in plenty of teams' rotations right now. So they have a lot of guys that – you know, they can go to, and when Rich Hill and Michael Pineda do get back, it doesn't just have to be, hey, who's going down or who's, you know, losing a spot. It's going to be more about who is producing at the highest level, who's healthy, who needs a break. Um, they're really going to be in an interesting spot to uh, to manage all of that. All right, Ted, go ahead and go out on a limb. Give me your bold prediction for the twin season. Give me a give me a prediction give me a bold prediction from the hitting side and from the pitching side. And if you want to do a third one just kind of team wide, do that. But uh, what are your bold predictions for the twenty twenty Minnesota Twins? Uh, if we have to go bold, these are gonna be a little bit lofty from both um I guess coming in next to each other because I don't think that there's any way that both happen in, in conjunction, but Miguel Sano leads the majors in home runs. We'll go that for an offensive um, prediction. And then I was um, semi on the idea that Jose Barrios could win a Cy Young last year. I don't think it's crazy that he wins one this year. Um, I just think that whenever he takes that next step, he's going to be in that conversation of a top three pitcher. That may not be a yearly thing, um, but I think it happens at least once in his career. Um, so, yeah, that's where I would go. I think I missed the third one, but I don't remember what the question was. <laughs> Team-wide. Team-wide? Uh, yeah. Let's go um, – I don't know if this is, a, is is even bold, but I think they uh, they win at least a handful, maybe even – you know, eight or so less games, 94, 93, something like that. Um, they're winning the division. I'm not worried about that. But I, I think it's uh, at least ALCS this year. I agree, actually. I put my One of my bold predictions is that the Twins are going to make it out of the first round of the playoffs. I think they're going to make the ALCS this year. I think they're too good of a team top to bottom not to. Yep, and I think whoever they face there is going to – I would rather see the, the Astros just because I think the Yankees have um, a little bit more balance. Um, but a guy like 
a guy like Maeda absolutely dominates right-handed batters, and a lot of the Twins pitchers are right-handed pitchers. So, you know, go ahead and throw out what you've got and let the Twins uh, righties go at them. What uh, is, is, in your opinion, what kind of year do you see for uh, Maeda? I would say his floor is probably something like what Jose Barrios put up last year. I would be pretty shocked if he didn't strike out close to 10 for nine. Um, You know, an ERA feeling right around four. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see what they throw him. I could see him being, you know, shut down or given breaks a couple of times because he hasn't pitched a full workload, not, not by his, uh, his decisions either I think that's important as people note that you know he can go to the pen he made up a, a pretty big stink about going to relief last year for the Dodgers and they were in a situation that they had so many good starting pitchers that you know it kind of necessitated it but um, you know if the twins need to conserve some innings or don't want to don't want to push him too hard I could see that being the case but you know, I think he's a. I think he's right there in the conversation with where Barrios and Odorizzi were last year. Ted, what do you think has been the biggest change, either in personnel, in the organization, in the 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 structure, whatever the case may be? What's been the biggest change? from the end of the 2019 season up to the 2020 season that fans may not recognize or understand, but is going to have the greatest impact on this season. Wow. Uh, man, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't know where I would go with that. I really like, um, well, I, I keep going back to this infrastructure that, Salvi and Levine continue to build. And I mean, I don't know all of these names, but you see this coach hired, that coach hired. Now go out and do some research and talk with them a little bit and get to know them. And, and the ideas that they're bringing into um, this organization and the way that, you know, going down to spring training every year, the way that it's transformed the past few years and seeing how some of these kids, um, on the farm are, are being coached and being utilized. There's a reason that Randy Dobnak and Devin Smeltzer, well, Smeltzer was kind of a known commodity, but there's a reason that Randy Dobnak made it to the major leagues last year. And yes, a lot of it is his hard work, but I'm sorry, the Terry Ryan regime or the, the twins infrastructure that was in place in 2017 does not make Randy Dobnak a major leaguer. It just doesn't happen. Um, so I, I think, you know, the, the continued, um, investment in and and Falvey and Levine have both been on the record in saying that from the moment that they got here that you know they're not going to outspend the Yankees and they're not going to outspend the Dodgers but they can spend a lot more money than other organizations are on their front office on their um, data teams on their scouting teams um, on their coaching staff and they're digging to places that other teams simply aren't or are now doing after the twins have had their pick. And I think that that continues to play a, a big role at the major league level. Um, my last question, then I'll let uh, Devlin finish it off. Uh, the idea was that the pole ads were cheap and 
with the signing of Josh Donaldson and now the trade of uh, Kenta Maeda, is that narrative history in your mind? I mean, I don't, I don't know how it couldn't be. Um, my my biggest contention with that has always been you can't just ask teams to spend um, when they're bad or when they're mediocre. You're not going to – it's not the NBA. You're not going to spend yourself out of mediocrity. And it kind of sucks for, for a sport like baseball where, yeah, then it, if, if you're not going to be good, you might as well be bad. And it, it doesn't pay the same dividends as, you know, football or – basketball where you get the top draft pick and then they immediately matter it's a long-term be bad type thing I mean ask the Marlins ask the Orioles ask the Tigers um but when they were you know not sure where they were at in 2017 or they were bad from 2012 to 2016 throwing another 50 to 90 million dollars or whatever you want to say at your roster is not going to make you good. It's going to make you third or second in the division. And okay, I guess it's more interesting, but we have this window of being good because they made smart decisions. And now because the window is open, it was right to spend and it made sense to spend. If they didn't spend this off season or start that spend, then there would have been reason to start saying, Hey, where is this money going? Next year, I think they push. you should push it up a little bit more, depending on, you know, what you have coming back and who you're extending. But $145 million or wherever they're going to start 2020 is not going to be their cap throughout this window. Um, I wrote about that, and I don't mean to be long-winded in this answer, but I wrote about that a little bit ago um, at Twins Daily comparing, you know, where the Twins are with the Cubs and the Astros and their World Series runs. And they started to spend in that first season – but their big spend didn't come two or three years until two or three years in. So now is when you start to say, okay, open up the pocketbook, and it absolutely makes sense. Let me uh, ask a follow-up on that. Um, are you surprised that they – because the high before was like 128. Um, uh, I might be a, a few dollars wrong on that, but – and now it's around 145. Did, did that surprise you that they went up that far? I had them pegged um, probably at a floor of 135, I thought was acceptable. Um, I didn't think that they would hit 150, so I guess they're on the high end of where I thought they would be. But they're going to be at 150 if they add somebody at the deadline anyway, so – give it to them. I mean, they're, they're not worried. They're doing exactly what a good team should. They're adding talent and spending now because it makes sense. It makes a difference. Now you go from, yeah, okay. You, you were going to win the division anyways, but you go from being a cute ALDS team to a, Hey, we can make the world series. And then we got seven games to let you know how we're going to make it. We started with this. Let's end with this. Obviously, it's top season one. It's release day. What is your favorite product during the season that gets released? Me, personally, I love the stadium club cards. I love them because their images and the photography that gets put on those cards is just taken to another level. It's not something you see on tops. It's not something you see in Bowman or Chrome or Heritage 
or even Allen and Ginter. I love the stadium club cards, and the photography they use is unbelievable. What's your favorite product that gets released during the season? Um, I love this question, and please follow me on Twitter or read um, off the baggie throughout the season because I plan on doing just like I did last year with Tops, kind of um, highlighting some of these products. And I think it's really fun to talk about if you're into cards or getting back into cards or don't even care and just love baseball. Um, I'm a huge Heritage fan. I stopped collecting for quite a while from the time that I was a kid till about four years ago. Um, and so seeing some of those old Tops designs, but current players on them um, is really fun for me. I'm not a big set builder, um, but I tend to put together a heritage set every year and think that's a lot of fun. If there's a more high-end product I like, I tend to love um, triple threads every year. I'm not a fan Mm -hmm. that the autographs are on stickers, but the cards tend to look absolutely awesome. Yeah, I, I agree. I, it's kind of like with me and Panini. I'm not a big fan of them because they don't have licensing rights, so they don't have you know team names or uniform logos or anything like that. They just have you know so and so baseball club and then the general very you know blank kind of jersey. Um, are you gonna be doing any giveaways on Twitter that people should know about? I have a couple of. Uh... Tops Triple Thread Burritos giveaways, actually, to do probably around spring training, if anything happens here soon. I don't know. I try to coincide them with, you know, something relevant within the Twins world. So stay tuned. Um, That'll be coming up. All right, Ted, uh, I want to thank you for uh, uh, giving us a chance. And, uh, it's always good to talk to you, and uh, we'll have to talk to you this spring. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Have a good night. You, you too. too, Ted. Appreciate it. And our fin- final, uh, I want to thank Ted for for making the time. It's always fun to talk to him because he is very knowledgeable about the Twins. Um. Our final guest is uh, Darren Doogie Wilson, and he talked about the Timberwolves, the Twins, and the Gophers. Uh, It was just me because he uh, texted me and said, can you uh, do it right now? So (laughs) I didn't have time to do anything else except uh, record the interview. So... uh, here is Darren Wolfson. Uh, my first question for you is, uh, who is going to be the point guard for the Timberwolves tonight? Well, tonight they have 10 guys available. I texted with a team official a few hours ago, Travis, and they do hope to have Alan Crabb back. Now, he's not a point guard, but... That does get them to 10 bodies. As far as tonight goes, they have Jordan McLaughlin. Jalen Noel can play on the ball. Jarek Culver can play on the ball. And Andrew Wiggins can play on the ball. So as far as tonight goes, as they try to end, what, this 12-game losing streak, it's a very winnable game against the lowly Atlanta Hawks. It'll be a combination of those four guys. Okay, uh, my next question. How did that trade – 
transpire last night? Well, I've heard mixed. You know, I had Bobby Marks on my podcast earlier today of ESPN. Mm-hmm. He made it sound like the Wolves were the facilitators, and that's probably true, but I also was told last night that the Rockets and the Hawks were waiting on the Wolves, that the Wolves were trying to finish off Denver's involvement. I guess both could be true, that the Wolves were the true facilitators, but they had to wait on Denver to fully be on board. You know, But, yeah, the Wolves certainly drove the bus on this. It's a forward-thinking front office. You know, you think about the Wolves having – you know, the guy in the front office that created ESPN's trade machine, you know, the Gerson Rosas and company. So it doesn't surprise me that the Wolves would have driven the bus on a four-team, 12-player transaction, the biggest trade in the NBA in 20 years. Uh, what, what, what were they really after in this trade? What, what made this trade go well, they were always seeking two first-round picks for Robert Covington and Travis. They got those two first-round picks. You know, there were separate transactions here where they ended up with both the Brooklyn pick from Atlanta and also Houston's first-round pick. They then took Houston's first-round pick and sent it to Denver from Malik Beasley and this guy, Hernan Gomez and Jarrett uh, Vanderbilt. You know, so they got these three players from, from Denver that, that have some – some intrigue and some possibilities, uh, but they did ultimately achieve their goal. They were looking to get two first-round picks for a guy that's 29, soon to be 30, who's got two years left on his deal. And Robert Covington is a good player. He is going to help Houston. But does he fill, you know, the window of, of when the Wolves, you know, have a chance to be truly good? Probably not. You know, you think about just interest in the Wolves, it's pretty low right now. Like at a recent game, I'm told they had less than 5,000 people come through, you know, the the turnstiles. I just saw the January TV ratings, unfortunately, because the Wolves being good is good business for me. So, unfortunately, the TV ratings were rock bottom. You know, so I think they needed to do something just to breathe some life into the organization. How about into that locker room? Like, losing is a bad thing. Breaking news, right, Travis? Losing is really bad. It creates just bad habits bad mojo, all that stuff. They need to start winning some games. Even if the playoffs are unrealistic, they have to start winning some games. I think a trade and shaking up the locker room, heck, in a significant way, when you think about going back to the Jeff Teague trade, they've actually moved on from six players in the last couple weeks. I think that will inject some life into that locker room. So I think they just felt like they had to do something. Plus, they are big fans of Malik Beasley. He's a restricted free agent this summer, so they can match any offer. Plus, at this point, I'm not quite sure who's going to pay him big money. So I see Malik Beasley here for a while. I mean, he can be a pretty good two-guard. 23 years old, he can shoot, he can put the ball on the floor. He doesn't defend a whole lot, so they'll have to work on that part of his game. He was really good last year. Like, I think he had a lot to do with Denver being the number two seed in the West last year. You know, so they get a piece that they really, really like. So, yeah, I think the Wolves did pretty well in this trade. Um, With every... Every move that the Wolves make, you have to ask the question, how is this affecting Carl Anthony Towns? Well, I would say this much, Travis. He is in lockstep with with uh, Ryan Saunders and with Gerson Rosas. Like, he hangs out at Ryan's house from time to time. They go to church together. Uh, I can promise you that, that this transaction or these transactions were not done just randomly without – without Carl Anthony Towns having some working knowledge of 
of what was going to take place. They've empowered him in so many different ways. You know, so yes. Is he incredibly close with Robert Covington? Absolutely. Do I think they are going to miss Robert Covington? Just his leadership, his off-the-court, you know, attributes? Yeah, I do. I, I think I think Covington had some, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, Travis, some FU to him, you know, behind the scenes of Carl Anthony Towns, where he could man up Carl Anthony Towns and, and tell some, some things to Carl Anthony Towns, and Carl would respond. You know, so I think they're going to miss that. Uh, but I can promise you, uh, these transactions were not done without without some sort of blessing from Carl Anthony Towns. He knows that there's an end game here, an end result that's desired, you know, trying to obtain D'Angelo Russell. So I can promise you, while I'm sure he's upset that his buddy is gone, Robert Covington, it's not like he's pissed off or anything like that. Okay, that was my next question. Uh, how are we looking in the – pursuit of D'Angelo Russell. Can that happen this trade that on, or are we looking more this summer? I think this summer is more realistic. I still think it's when, not if, Travis, they end up moving Russell. I just don't know if I see it in the next, at this point, 23 hours. I just don't know why, if you're Golden State, why you feel compelled to move him right now. Why not see how he and Steph Curry coexist for at least some sort of stretch, and then make a determination in the summer. You might have other bidders in the summer. You know, maybe you wait until this time next year. Like, there's no rush if you're the Warriors to trade D'Angelo Russell. So I would be very, very surprised if the Wolves can pull this off. They're trying. I can promise you they're still in, in you know, in communication with the Warriors. But, Travis, I would be surprised if we have news in the next 23 and a half hours that D'Angelo Russell is a Timberwolf. How close did uh, the discussed Andrew Wiggins, D'Angelo Russell trade talks come to fruition? Come to uh, it? Yeah, fruition. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, that's the name that that has come up. You know, if people are are wondering, Travis, if if listeners are wondering why the Warriors would entertain such an idea, they're trying to get under the repeat luxury tax. Now, the Warriors print money. They just moved into a new arena. You think about all those championship runs. It's not like the Warriors are hurting for money. Like, there's three or four or five special franchises in the NBA that operate on a different level. The Warriors are one of those franchises. That being said, if, if they can find a way in a really bad year for them, just with all these injuries, to avoid the, the repeater luxury tax, they do have some interest in that. So taking on Wiggins would actually help them in that regard. Plus, they would get a couple future you know, draft picks. But I'm just saying, I as I sit here talking to you at 2.53 Central on Wednesday afternoon, I don't sense that anything is remotely close. Would the Wolves entertain trading their first-round pick this year? Yeah, they would. I mean, they even had some talk about that going back to, to last draft. There was actually talk leading into the 2019 draft of, of them moving their 2020 draft pick. But I think there's some trepidation on on having it be unprotected. You know, if they move it, they'd like some protection on that pick. But, yeah, I think they are open-minded. I don't think they – like, they're married to Carl Anthony Towns right now, right? He's not going anywhere. They're not necessarily married to their first-round pick. Uh, it's not, like, on the table right this second, but could it eventually be on the table? I wouldn't be surprised. I'm a little surprised by that because uh, it probably will be in the top three the way things are, are looking. 
Well, what do they have now? Let me pull it up, Travis. What, the fifth or sixth worst record? And now the lottery is, what, the top four picks? So they still need to get lucky, right? Like if they just draft where they're slotted to draft, they're not going to pick in the top three. And I don't think some of these teams are going to jump the Wolves. As bad as the Wolves are right now, they are the worst team in the NBA since December 1st. I don't know if teams like Cleveland and New York and Golden State and Washington, I don't know if some of these teams are going to jump the Wolves in the win column. So I'm just saying, if they maintain their draft pick, they'll probably be like pick five or pick six. Good pick, don't get me wrong, but it's not in the top three. They'd have to get lucky to move into the top three. Okay, uh, let's talk about the Twins for a minute. Uh, that trade, how did that transpire on your end? Well, I got a tip. I don't know. I mean, five minutes before I tweeted it out last night that the Twins were were very, very likely the, the third team. You know, I couched it a little bit on Twitter just saying, you know, keep an eye on, on the hashtag MN Twins. Uh, but I think that got the uh, the juices flowing. I think a lot of people got excited on social media. And, yeah, soon thereafter found out that, that indeed, they, they were the third team and that they were shipping off Bruce Dargratterall, who Chaim Bloom and, and others with the Red Sox really, really like. And they are getting back Kenta Maeda, who's, who's a good starter, you know, on a really good contract, a guy that can slot in probably after Barrios and Odorizzi. He's probably the number three starter. But he's a guy with really good postseason numbers. He's pitched out of the bullpen before. He doesn't like that, but he's pitched out of the bullpen before. You know, so I think, you know, when it comes to competing in 2020, I like the move. I still think Gratterall's got a chance to be pretty good. We can debate whether whether he's a starter long-term or a reliever. I think some in the Twins organization think he's, he's really a reliever long-term, not a starter. I would imagine that the Red Sox, you know, acquiring just one arm in this transaction, this massive transaction, will at least try out Gratterall as a starter initially. Uh, but in terms of competing in 2020, where the Twins feel like the, the window is wide open to win a World Series, to win a lot of games just like they did in 2019, Maeda helps them a ton more this year, helps them a ton more than Gratterall. Then you think about 2021, you know, Odorizzi is, what, a free agent. Homer Bailey is a free agent. So they'll have some holes in that rotation. So now you know you've got Kenta Maeda as one of your guys in the 2021 starting rotation. Um, last question about the Twins, and I want to have one, one more question. Uh, do you think this uh, trade and the Josh Donaldson signing changes perspective amongst Twins fans? I do. I even talked to Dave St. Peter, to Jim Polad, to others about that at Twins Fest a couple weekends ago. Now, you know, the the 10 percenters on Twitter that like to bitch and complain about everything, no, you're probably not changing their minds. But I still don't think a lot of those people are spending money. You know, maybe they consume the Twins on TV, so they're watching the ads, you know, in between – you know, half innings, the the commercials. Uh, but I don't think they're spending a lot of money going to games, you know, consuming the Twins and, and spending money on the Twins in, in that regard. Uh, but, yeah, for many others, yeah, I think a lot of people just didn't think it was humanly possible for the Twins to sign a big-name free agent, to invest over $90 million in a free agent. 
So, yeah, signing Josh Donaldson does change that narrative in many, many ways. And does this trade, trading up a, a prospect that most people thought was untouchable, does that move it even further in your mind? Well, I don't know. I mean, who views him as or viewed him as untouchable? I don't think they necessarily have a prospect that's untouchable. Like, if they had a chance to acquire a top five arm today, do I think that Royce Lewis is untouchable? I don't. Like, if you told me Jacob deGrom was available right this second and all the Twins had to do was give up Royce Lewis, I think they would do it. So, like, I don't think these guys are untouchable. Now, I do think this regime with its draft picks, you know, they'd like to see these guys get to the majors. Like, you think about this regime. Their first draft pick was Royce Lewis. So, like, it would take a lot for them to move Royce Lewis. Like, I think they would move many other prospects before Royce Lewis. But they're not married, per se, to any of these guys, Travis, if if the right opportunity presents itself. Okay, uh, last question. Uh, Tonight's the border battle. Uh, The Gophers in Wisconsin. Uh, A two-part question. Uh, Do you give the Gophers uh, a good chance to pull off the upset? And and the second part is, do you give the Gophers much chance to make the NCAA tournament? All right, two parts. I'm actually going to VegasInsider.com as we speak, Travis. Let's see if I can multitask Vegas odds. You say upset. I haven't even seen what the point spread is tonight. I will I will trust you on that, but I just want to verify. So let me see if I can find it, the point spread tonight. The Gophers are a three-and-a-half-point favorite. So the upset would be the Badgers winning, Travis, not the Gophers. In fact, three-and-a-half is a pretty healthy number. Yep, that is the current line at the MGM Mirage in Vegas as we speak. In fact, all across Vegas. Across the board, Gophers minus three-and-a-half. I would give the points. I think home court advantage matters so much in the Big Ten, especially I think in this particular matchup. I think the Badgers played really well against Michigan State over the weekend, minus Kobe King and Brad Davison. Davison back tonight. But I think they're still down, you know, in terms of numbers and depth and a good player with King. So I think they will miss King tonight. I don't know if Nate Reavers and company can really contain Daniel Oturu. And I think that that Carr can win the matchup against Trice. So, yeah, I think the Gophers win. I don't say that with a ton of conviction. Like, if the Badgers win tonight, I won't be shocked. But, yeah, if you're asking me to pick a winner tonight, I think the Gophers win on their home court. If this game was at the Kohl Center, I might feel differently. But I've got the Gophers tonight. In terms of the Gophers making the NCAA tournament, I think it's going to be tough. I think the Big Ten can get maybe 11 teams, which would be ridiculous. But I think that's realistic. But I think it's going to be tough. They're going to be right there. Like, I think the key will be the Big Ten tournament. Can they win two games? I think they're going to be right there in the bubble. Can they win two games in the Big Ten tournament? If they do that, I think they will be in. So I guess it comes down to matchups. Call me, Travis, like March 10th, March 11th, and I'll give you a better answer. I think they're going to be there until the final day. Like that final game they play in the Big Ten tournament, I think they're going to be right there on the bubble. So I think it's going to come down to how they do in the Big Ten tournament. But I think they certainly have a chance. But if you're asking me right now, you know, if you're if you're asking for, for me to say yes or no, and that's why you have me on to give my opinion, I will say no. They don't make the NCAA tournament. 
All right, Doogie. Uh, I appreciate you uh, carving out the time. Uh, I know you're busy this week. Uh, we'll have to do this again uh, when you're have a little 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 bit more uh, clarity. Sure. You know how to track me down, Travis. So if I can make my schedule work, always happy to help you. That was Darren Doody Wilson, and we kind of ran the gamut on that interview from the Timberwolves, the Gophers, and the Twins. And I want to thank Devlin Clark for being my co-host tonight, and uh, that's going to be a show. Thanks for listening, and talk to you next week. Good night, everyone. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.